That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog, because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. I got to be honest, it was uh, it was fun to watch Oregon and Oregon State yesterday play in the Women's Pac-12 tournament. Uh, the men's tournament is going to take place next week, but you've watched Oregon and Oregon State. If I can just step back for just a second here. We've watched them over the years dominate women's college basketball. We've watched them do very well, make the Final Four. Sabrina Ionescu at Oregon, players like Michaela Pivik and others at Oregon State. Get to Final Four. Scott Ruick playing UConn in a Final Four. Kelly Graves playing Baylor in a Final Four. Uh, We have uh, seen these teams compete at a high level, and frankly, we've declared uh, Oregon and Oregon State to be kind of uh, one of the tent poles of women's college basketball and certainly in the Pac-12 conference uh, programs that you have to reckon with. But what happened this season with Oregon and Oregon State? Like, really disappointing years for these two programs. Oregon State... Finishes the year in 11th place, is the 11th seed in the Pac-12 tournament. Oregon was in 9th place. Like, literally, if you'd flipped the standings upside down, I would have found it more believable. Like, we're watching Utah dominate. Of course, Stanford's up top. They've been there. Arizona, UCLA, always terrific. Colorado's been good this season. But it's been really surprising to see the struggles of Oregon and the struggles of Oregon State. Now, I've talked with both coaches. I've talked with fans in the program. I've talked with players in the program. We've had them on this show. We've talked about how difficult it is to keep players in an era where there's a transfer portal. Now, all programs lose players in the portal. That's true. And we've watched it, and a lot of times we talk about it just in terms of uh, uh, you know, college football and, and men's college basketball and, as players are chasing NIL money and, and whatnot. But I thought it was really interesting to just kind of watch the deterioration of the Oregon program and the Oregon State program in the, in the last 12 to 18 months and really starting to ask questions. Like even this week, I thought, you know, uh, I'm headed to Vegas. Should I be writing about the downfall of these two programs? Should I be writing about how they're struggling? Should I be writing about what went wrong? And then what happened? Wednesday happened. Yesterday, I was kind of casually side-eye watching the Oregon-Washington game during this show and watching Oregon fall behind and going, this is just kind of what Oregon has done this season. And they've struggled. And, you know, we, you know, we had Kelly Graves on the show. And I think, uh, you know, they, they had lost like seven in a row. And uh, nine in a row, maybe at one point, and and uh, you know he came on the show and he faced the music. And at the interview, I told Graves, "Say I got a lot of respect for you coming on this program when things aren't going right, because it's really easy for coaches, particularly in non-revenue generating sports, to do a victory lap on this show when things are going right. And we have a lot of those coaches on. You know, they make the NCAA tournament, they win a golf tournament, they uh, you know they beat Ten uh, M in a couple of baseball games. We bring them on." And we sort of celebrate, hey, what's going right? What's going well? Let's give you the spotlight. But uh, this was a very different 
time for both Oregon and Oregon State. And Scott Ruick and Kelly Graves, neither one of those guys shied away from coming on this show and talking about the struggles and talking about the frustrations. And in the case of Oregon, it really was questions about, like, have they lost their momentum? What has changed? Why are they losing players in the transfer portal? What's going wrong? And I was starting to get emails from frustrated Duck fans, which only tells me that it's arrived as a legitimate uh, force of a program in the eyes of the public because people are frustrated and going, damn it, I want more from these teams. Uh, and, and you know, we had just heard from Graves last week who, who uh, you know, said he feels good in front of every game, and yet what happens late in games to the Ducks, they wilt, they fade, and they struggle down the stretch. Well, that did not happen in yesterday's game. They overcame a late deficit. Uh, you know, we're trailing Washington, looked like they were done. The Ducks are the nine seed. Washington's the eight seed. All of a sudden, it's Oregon really riding uh, two really good players, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, Endea Rogers and Tahena Pow Pow uh, combined for 41 points in this game. And they overcome a deficit late, come back to beat Washington 52-50, and really found a way to close out what was a really important game for Graves and his program. And, of course, they as a result, they advance to uh, this game against Stanford, and, you know, they get the one seed, all right? So, look, uh, great opportunity, and, you know, Oregon's program, even though the record this season hasn't been what they wanted, they're now 17-13. and 13. Their net ranking is 18th. It'll be really interesting to see what the NCAA Tournament Selection Committee does with the Ducks. Um, and they are the kind of team, I think, with, they got a lot of young players on this team. With a year or two, they could find themselves really back in the hunt, like as a Sweet 16, Elite 8 type program. Uh, so keep an eye on Kelly Graves and the Ducks there. Scott Ruick and Oregon State, very different story. They were playing uh, without their best player in this tournament. She's been hurt. Uh, I caught up to Oregon State in Maui as part of the Maui Invitational earlier this year. I watched them play LSU. In fact, I watched them play two games. Went over to the gym. Took the girls, Anna and I said, let's bring the girls, you know, with six-year-old and eight-year-old and and uh, the college kid who's obviously a big Oregon State fan, and uh, let's go see the game. And they all went to the game, and we watched them play. I think it was Montana in the first game, and then they, they had LSU. They drew LSU and, uh, you know, the what, then was the number one team in the country uh, in, in that second game, and LSU just boat raced them. I mean, could have beat them by 100 if they wanted to. It was just such a disparity for me to see a Final Four program that Oregon State had been playing at a level that was less than great, right? And so uh, I, I I said, look, they're not on that elite national level. They just were nowhere close. LSU had eight players that were better than all but maybe one of Oregon State's players. It was just a dominant performance by LSU. And uh, I left that game going, gosh, they're light years behind where they were just you know five, six, seven years ago. Um, watched them all season long, fail to close out games. They were hanging around fourth quarter. They'd be in games, but they lost and lost and lost. They lost so many games in different ways. Really disappointing to see them. So this is what made, I think, this game in particular special because Oregon State was looking at uh, as a, uh, a game in which they were going to do what they have always done, right? They're playing the number six seed, USC. USC's record coming into the game was 21 and 8. Oregon State's 13 and or 12 and 17 at that point. And the, what did the Beavers do? They overcame an eight-point deficit in the fourth quarter. 
they really rode the uh, the the physical play of Reagan Beers, the great freshman uh, post player who had 18 points in the game, nine rebounds. Uh, ben Duyani uh, was just fantastic distributing the ball uh, and really efficient in the fourth quarter. But it was really exciting to see Oregon State kind of take a step forward. And I know coaches talk about that kind of stuff all the time. Parents, hell, we talk about it all the time in our household with our own kids. Like the growth that you can see in a kid, whether they're playing piano or playing soccer or they're a student or just a maturity growth or just maybe even two siblings in the case of our house, we kind of watch them evolve and grow as people. Like the growth that you see in kids is inspiring and it's really stark. Like it, it jumps out at you when you see true growth. I, I think we saw some growth from Oregon State especially in the second half of the game, that game against USC. Now, USC's going to the NCAA tournament. They'll be picked. They'll have to wait for the selection committee. Oregon State's going to have to win the women's Pac-12 tournament to get in. Now, uh, I wouldn't pick them to win this tournament, but I thought Scott Ruick after the game, he sounded giddy in the post-game news conference. They advance. They play tonight at 8.30 against Colorado in Vegas. But just to see his team without playing without, again, without his best player, Take that kind of step forward, really something to build on for Oregon State uh, and Scott Ruick. Like, uh, such a nice finish, a breakthrough moment, so to speak, for Oregon State. And look, we've seen this stuff before. We've seen it across sports. We saw it with the Blazers several years ago as they found themselves in a, you know, a, a first-round playoff series uh, with uh, Oklahoma City, and they find a way to win that series, and Damian Lillard hits that 37-foot shot over Paul George. It was cathartic. It was it was a franchise taking a step forward, saying, hey, we're getting out of the first round. And then they get into that series with uh, Denver, and they win that series, and they go to the Western Conference Finals. It was really kind of a exhale moment for the franchise. Same goes for the Oregon Ducks. As, you know, they have had some moments maybe under Mario Cristobal a few years ago, or even, frankly, if we go way back under Chip Kelly, there were moments where Chip Kelly's program took steps forward. Uh, even Mark Halfridge's program, winning that Rose Bowl semifinal college football playoff game against Florida State and Jameis Winston and moving on to, to play Ohio State and Ezekiel Elliott for the national championship. There have been breakthrough moments, right? I thought Sabrina Ionescu gave us some breakthrough moments. Marcus Mariota gave us some breakthrough moments. We have watched this. Jonathan Smith in Oregon State in football last season. You know, where was the catharsis last season for Oregon State? Did it, you know, would you say it came against Fresno State when they went for two to win the game instead of going for the tie and playing for overtime? Well, would you say that it was, uh, you know, beating Oregon in the in the Civil War football game? Would you say it was, you know, was there another win uh, for Oregon State that really kind of cemented it? Was the bowl game win over Florida, like getting to 10 wins for only the third time in program history? What I'm saying is we've seen some of these moments and so even though it came in a game where Oregon State last night was just looking for win number 13, I mean, they're 13 and 17 now. You know, they're not going to the tournament unless they can beat Colorado, beat, you know, UCLA, beat Stanford, whoever they have to beat that's in their path, and win the automatic bid in the conference. But it was a huge moment nonetheless for a Scott Ruick program that has struggled and struggled and struggled at different points. Hey, we got a great show for you today. We got big guests. Amy Perko, the CEO of the Knight Commission, is going to be with us. John Wilner of the San Jose Mercury News. We'll talk some Pac-12 and media rights and all that business coming up. Uh, I've got some thoughts, though, next on Russell Wilson. I've been thinking about Danger Russ. What is wrong with Russell Wilson? 
Can it be explained by football alone? I don't think so. Uh, just bear with me here. Plus, we're going to deal with Coach Prime. Look, there's been a lot of talk about Colorado football. How good can they be? How dominant can they be in year one? Coach Prime says he's not going to win eventually. He says he's going to win right now. I'm going to unpack that. Plus, Kevin Durant makes his debut so much ahead in the return of C.J. McCollum. How did that go for you? We'll talk about the uh, Blazers' loss and the Pelicans' win and what was on display at Moda Center as C.J. McCollum and the Pelicans walked off winners last night. Uh, up next, though, Russell Wilson. I'm going to unpack it. I've been thinking about Russell Wilson. I don't think it's just football that plagues him. I think there's something else maybe going on. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Russell Wilson had what was uh, easily his worst, least productive, least successful season as an NFL quarterback last season with the Denver Broncos. He was terrible. I, I tuned in and watched games, and I saw Russell Wilson, a player that I came to fear as a 49er fan. He's in the Seahawks uniform. Uh, I, I saw that guy uh, looking very ordinary, looking like he didn't have his confidence, looking like he couldn't make plays, looking like he was making wrong decisions. He was in his head a lot, and I think there's been a whole industry that has popped out of this with people trying to explain what is going on with Russell Wilson, what has gone wrong with Russell Wilson. And what I'm talking about is that like, there's a cottage industry in national sports media that is dedicated uh, you know, hours of programming to dissecting what's wrong with Russell Wilson. I, I saw something recently, I saw it this week, that, that caught my attention that I thought was really interesting. Because so often in sports, we look at mistakes that athletes are making on the field or plays that they're making, good and bad, and we attribute that to a, a physical, mechanical issue. Quarterback must have a mechanical problem. Must have a, he must have lost a step, right? Can't make plays. But does anybody really believe that Russell Wilson changed uniforms and suddenly wasn't as good? That it, that it was the system in Seattle that... He, you know, once he got to Denver and he got in that other uniform, he couldn't play. Too many bathrooms in the new house. Like, I don't buy that for a second. And I find it interesting that in sports we often talk about it being a physical issue and we look at athletes as if they are robots. They're not real people. They don't have real challenges like the rest of us. But I wonder, as I look at Russell Wilson, if there's something more going on there with the him departing Seattle, all the public criticism, teammates, the backbiting that goes on. Uh, the pressures and the expectations of the new contract. And I saw something Ryan Leaf said this week that really caught my attention. And I think it's worth thinking about. Because if you have a friend or I have a friend who suddenly is struggling, maybe they're struggling professionally, um, I think one of the most important questions you can ask somebody who's struggling, maybe they're not producing, it's a salesperson, they're not producing enough, or maybe it's uh, somebody in some other industry and you suddenly go, hey, your work isn't there, you look distracted. What's going on? Like, what's really going on? And Ryan Leaf kind of took a dive in that direction in a what's going on way with Russell Wilson. And I think it's really a fascinating listen. I'm going to tell you a little story about Russell Wilson, okay? So Russell, of course, transferred to Wisconsin his final year, got the opportunity to play, went to a Rose Bowl, was very successful. Went down to IMG, 
uh, to prepare for the draft. He met a young man there named Trevor Moed. Now, Trevor works in the brain and cognitive field and mental health. He's worked alongside Nick Saban in the Alabama Crimson Tide and Kirby Smart. He developed this way of thinking called neutral thinking. And in that mindset, you allow no negative thoughts in your mind. I mean, you don't even ponder them. It's not even in existence, okay? And Russell bought into it early on, okay? And they built something together that was pretty great. Now, Trevor worked with me when I got out of prison. And I can't tell you the difference it made in terms of the way I view the world, right? It has made my life increasingly better and changed my outlook and perspective about everything and how I go about my business. Unfortunately, Trevor, uh, our good friend, died right at the end uh, of Russell's stay in Seattle of a brain tumor. He didn't tell any of us. He thought he was being a burden. So this man had been increasingly important to Russell Wilson during this process, teaching him they were partners. And I don't think enough people talked about it last year. This was the first season in which he didn't have Trevor. And I tell people all the time, when you walk into a facility and you're exercising your body, okay, you get a trainer to do that. You need a trainer to exercise the biggest muscle in your body, and that's your brain. And he didn't have it last year. There's a reason why when he steps up to the microphone at the end and says, Broncos country, let's ride. He says it every single time. That's the neutral aspect of things. He never got low. I want you to think about that in context of what we saw on the field from Russell Wilson this last NFL season. And now uh, he's going through something that really he didn't ever go through in Seattle. There's a total regime change going on with the firing of his head coach and new coordinator and new quarterback coach and hey your coach is going to get out of the building and you know and I think it's going to be an interesting study to see if Russell Wilson can get back on track but what Ryan Leaf is talking about there helps sort of explain the erosion of confidence and the change of mindset like Russell Wilson just looked different on the field to me he looked was looking around he was a little more wide-eyed he looked like you know he was a little in his head he was pressing at times I saw him try to do too much both passing the ball and running the ball at different times and uh, with with poor success or at least mixed success at best. And let's face it, he didn't have a great team around him. So I think it'll be interesting to see if Sean Payton in Denver can help build around Russell Wilson a little better. And I think ultimately, you know, whatever you think of Payton, you look back at his tenure, especially with the Saints and the, all of the bounty gate and all that stuff, and then you look at just the success that he had on the field, we all know the guy can coach. But I think this is going to be part of how we judge Sean Payton's career when you look back on his his time as a head coach because the Denver Broncos are locked into Russell Wilson in a hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollar way that they can't get out of. So rather than sit there and you know go, hey, you know, yeah, Russell's lost his fastball. We need to move in another direction. No, they're kind of stuck with him in a way that says, hey, we have to try to at least in the next season or two resurrect this guy or reshape this guy and build him back up. But what Leaf is talking about is something that I think the rest of us really can seize on. It's something I try to focus on. I think it becomes very easy if you surround yourself with negative people to take on a negative mindset. You know, I always use the analogy with our kids. I tell them, you know, your head's like an apartment building. You've got vacant apartments there. Why would you rent them out to uh, tenants that are negative and 
lethargic and walking around complaining all the time. Rent those apartments out to people who are positive and upbeat and focused. Let those people exist in, 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 the, in the vacancies that are in your mind and focus on that stuff. It's really what Leaf's talking about. And Russell Wilson not just you know didn't just leave Seattle. He didn't just go to Denver and suddenly have all this pressure and a lot of teammates in the rearview mirror snickering and laughing and telling stories that weren't flattering. And that had to, I think, rattle him at least, to, you know, privately. Uh, he didn't show that publicly. He kind of waved it off. But, you know, now we're getting these reports just to, even a week ago that, you know, he tried to get John Schneider and Pete Carroll fired. I don't know what's true and what's not on that front. But I think, you know, what we're seeing is Russell Wilson kind of struggling with trying to get his feet underneath him. And, and, you know, we love this in sports, right? We love, uh, we love great athletes who have high, big success. Uh, I think a lot of people also love to see athletes who are successful struggle, struggle with their own limitations, struggle psychologically, struggle with production. Why is that? Because the rest of us struggle too. We all, we're all in a struggle with our limitations. Think about it. Think about yourself. Think about myself in writing a sports column and doing a radio show and trying to be a dad and trying to be a husband and trying to be a friend and trying to be a son. We're in this constant struggle with our limitations, both professionally and personally. But if, if you're telling me that the guy who was primarily responsible for directing Russell Wilson's mindset, you know, uh, is, so to speak, the life coach in his life, uh, the board of directors, the CEO on his, his personal board of directors, that guy... Uh, ends up exiting not uh, not all that far off from the same time that Wilson and his time in Seattle crumbled, and he ends up in a new place in Denver, and he's a little bit adrift, a little bit untethered personally. Why wouldn't the professional struggles follow? Like, I've watched coaches, major college football coaches, who are successful, smart, capable, confident coaches. I've been around these people, and I and I've watched some who have had some struggles in their personal life. Okay, as far as I'm going to go, I'm just going to say they've had struggles in their personal life. There's problems or there's disruption at home or with their family. I've seen those people try to focus, try to bury themselves in their job, try to say, okay, I'm not going to, I'm going to compartmentalize this and not allow it to affect my performance in my job. But I think it is a rare individual who can actually do that. And I think we can all relate to that. Like if there's some issue at home with your kids or your family, your uh, your you know primary partner in life and there's something going on there you're not quite right you're distracted you're off it's you know you're not you're not on your game so to speak so i i don't think like russell wilson is struggling with his wife or his family uh, i don't you know he's obviously financially not having any financial worries but i think that yeah he is a very public guy who has often come off as a little bit uh, inauthentic uh, you notice i didn't say fake inauthentic and a guy who's like rah-rah for the cameras and all about himself. And, you know, he's kind of emblematic of today's superstar athlete, like maybe at the nth degree. But I also feel like this guy lost that person that kept him tethered and focused and kept his mind clear at a time when he needed to have his mind clear. Keep an eye on that as the next NFL season approaches. Let's see how different Russell Wilson looks and feels and sounds. But also... Think about it for your own life. Like, you know, I, I've often had close friends, smarter people than I, that I hang out with who will talk about, you know, having a board of directors in your life. Like, who is on your board of directors personally? Have you ever thought about that? Who's the CEO? If you have a board of directors in your life, 
You know, for me, like, you know, my dad would be on that board. I have a couple of close friends who are in the media industry who would be on that board. Anna certainly would have a seat on that board. I think, you know, she's smarter than me. She's got a great mind when it comes to business and life and uh, great life experiences. And, you know, but think about it for yourself. Like, who do you put on your personal board of directors? Because I think what happened to Russell Wilson in moving from Seattle to Denver is, you know, he may have had Pete Carroll on that board. He may have had a teammate on that board. He certainly had what, you know, what Ryan Leaf talks about being a major influence in his life on that board. All that changed at a time in which he was changing uniforms. I don't think it was the uniform that hurt Russell Wilson last season. I want you to leave it here. You got the bald-faced truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Everything that Deion Sanders has ever uh, touched, seemingly has turned to gold. And now he is in uh, those gold helmets at Colorado. And we've talked about Sanders probably and more about Colorado football on this show in the last six months than we probably uh, have in the prior 16 and a half years. I mean, let's face it, Colorado football has been talked about. It's been written about. Um, There are big plans for their spring game. Uh, they're charging $10 for people who are wanting to get into their spring game. I think they sold like 30,000 tickets uh, initially right out of the gates. And so there's going to be a lot of attention there. And, of course, the national media will descend upon Boulder. And But uh, just really kind of interesting to kind of hear everybody talking about the spring game and Colorado and excitement. And we've had people call into this show. Uh, the official numbers, more than 30,000 tickets sold for the spring game. It'll be held April 22nd. Boulder Daily Camera reporting that um, the 1-11 team, uh, what's different at Colorado? Hmm. Dion's what's different. Coach Prime is what's different. But since he has been named the coach there, um, you're talking about spring tickets. You're talking about season tickets. You're talking about the doubling of their social media accounts as far as followers. And frankly, look, I can remember it was the same weekend that the Big Ten Championship and the SEC Championship game were being held. uh, And uh, the broadcasters were talking about Colorado football during the broadcast. This is all good for Colorado, and it's all good for Coach Prime, and it's all good for the Pac-12 if you really think about it. But how good can Colorado be this next season? I keep looking at their schedule, and I'm having a hard time getting them to wins. I can see four. Maybe I can see five. But uh, Coach Prime says they're not just going to win. They're going to win right now. Listen. I don't know if y'all know it, but we're going to win. I don't know if you feel it, but we're going to win. I don't know if you can see it, but we're going to win. you got to understand we're going to win right now, not later. This kind of goes to the point I was making earlier with Russell Wilson and, you know, his life coach or the guy that kind of got his mindset in the right way being out of the picture. Talk about what was added at Colorado. It, it's not just Coach Prime coming through the door and a bunch of people going, hey, uh, let's buy tickets. This could be interesting. This could be exciting. Um, you know, this is a guy who's got two seasons of head coaching experience at Jackson State under his belt, uh, but he's also got the ESPN's 23rd ranked recruiting class overall and a whole bunch of people that are rubbernecking on the program, and he's hired great assistant coaches. And so I think Colorado is going to be a really interesting study in seeing how fast in today's world, in 2023, a coach can turn a program around. And again, 
I look at their non-conference schedule. It's brutal. And it's not a, it's not the kind of schedule where you would go, you know what, um, yeah, I think they could be bowl eligible in year one. But, you know, Deion Sanders met with the Colorado band. He's trying to, with a theme song for the football team. He's not over not only overhauling the program, he's not only walking in, putting positive messaging in the minds of his team, he is also making his mark on the marching band. Like, no-nonsense approach, uh, you know, coming to the band going, hey, we need to change everything. So I find this really interesting. And I, I think the guy's a fascinating study because when you look at him, whether it is Deion Sanders as a football player, Deion Sanders as a, ba- a baseball player, Deion Sanders as a coach, Deion Sanders as a product endorser, Deion Sanders as a uh, musician, Deion Sanders as a, you know, guy that could be an entertainer or an actor or, you know, whatever he's done, he's had success at. So when he comes through the program and he starts talking about, hey, we're going to win and we're going to win now, not next year, I do I do listen to the people who are saying, hey, uh, look out. Like, Colorado could have the biggest turnaround in program history. Now, it, it again... I think it's harder than that in college football generally because you have cycles of three and four years of recruiting that you have to overcome. Bad recruiting at Colorado, no success at Colorado, 1-11 last year at Colorado. But this is a guy who is talking to his players about wearing the right kind of socks, you know, finishing drills. I've watched so much video of Coach Prime. I'm fascinated by the guy. But he's also meeting with the school band and the cheer directors and the staff everywhere. Because he wants to come up with a new theme song, you know? And so uh, I think it's really going to be interesting. Um, and by, by the way, when he was at Jackson State, he would always address his team in the locker room before the game. And then he would close out his speech with, now give me my theme music. And that, that song that Mystical would play. And it, it might just be that that ends up being his song. But keep an eye on Colorado because, you know, again, I point out in 2023, how fast can you turn around a college football program? Not only does Colorado have the advantage of Deion Sanders, it not only has the advantage of being in the Pac-12 where you're not going to run up against Michigan, Ohio State, you know, it's not the SEC. Now, there's some teams you got to get by. You're going to have to deal with USC. You're going to have to deal with Oregon. You're going to have to deal with Oregon State. You're going to have to deal with Washington and Utah. But uh, he also has, it, it being 2023, he has the transfer portal. And he was recently giving away the award for the 2022 AP Coach of the Year, and this is an example of kind of the messaging and the platform that Deion Sanders has, Coach Prime has, that other coaches don't have available to them. Here he is in a room filled with NFL coaches, former coaches, uh, high-profile personalities, nationally broadcast. Here's Deion Sanders on the stage. I would be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to recruit. I got the Boses, the Watt. Jerry said I could borrow the star. Jimmy said he's going to help me out. I need all your cousins, your mom and them, your nephews. Send them right to Colorado. We good? All right. And don't have no NIL money either, by the way. And the 2022 AP Coach of the Year is? The guy is an entertainer. I give him that. Like, you know, he is captivating. By the way, the 2022 Associated Press Coach of the Year, do you know who it was? TCU's Sonny Dykes. The guy that was at Cal didn't win at all. Everybody said he couldn't coach. Goes to TCU, gets players, builds the program. There's a lot that goes into building a program. Can Deion Sanders in one year make that big of a difference at Colorado? I think it's one of the biggest questions in the Pac-12 conference for this next season. After you talk about 
USC, after you talk about um, Oregon and Oregon State and Washington and Michael Penix Jr. and the great quarterbacks that are in the league. And once you start to get past those things, you start talking about the Colorado football schedule and how much of an impact Deion Sanders can make in just one season. Again, Colorado opens on September 2nd against who? TCU and Sonny Dykes. week later, they host Nebraska. Then they host Colorado State. Best case scenario, they're 2-1 and one there. Worst case scenario, they're 0-3. You know, probably more likely they're 1-2 and two or I'll give it, let's, even if we give them 2-1. Then they open Pac-12 play a week later at Oregon. Then they host USC. So you talk about the first five opponents of the year. It's TCU, Nebraska, Colorado State, Oregon, USC. Where are they at that point? And I think it's going to be fascinating. And I don't blame the Pac-12 for scheduling Oregon in that first week of conference play and scheduling USC in the second week. What are they doing? They're trying to get on TV. They're trying to get on TV while Coach Prime still has the shine on him, just in case Colorado does go in the tank. And, and in the t- by in the tank, I mean, hey, is it a 3-9 and nine season? Is it a 4-8 and eight season? Like, that's out there, too, when you take over a 1-11 program. But I like so much of the messaging that I'm hearing out of Colorado that I'm willing to entertain the idea that we might just see a little bit of a surprising turnaround. And I know Mike in Portland's loving this. Probably listening on the radio, he's ready to fist bump. But uh, look out! I think it. I just think it's a fascinating storyline. I mean, whether he does it or doesn't do it, we're all going to be watching. I can tell you, ESPN, Fox, everybody else will be talking about it, and won't be surprised if College Football Game Day or somebody uh, goes to one of those first two Pac-12 games, either in Eugene or that home game against USC in the second week of the Pac-12 season. I want you to leave it here. You got the bald-faced truth statewide. I appreciate everybody who makes this radio show part of their day. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I was in London for the Olympics in 2012 and made a startling realization. Uh, I, America's fat. It's true. We're out of control. And, and uh, Gary Player came on this show once and gave a, a fantastic rant about uh, obesity and childhood obesity in, in our country. And I'll play that here in just a second. But I was in London in 2012 for the Olympics and... Uh, I was on a media shuttle bus, and for people who don't know, when the Olympics are held, you know, they'll say the Olympics are in London, but really the venues are all over the place in the surrounding area and the suburbs, and you could be on buses all day long traveling from one venue to another or whatnot. There's like a hub of buses that go around, and so I spent a lot of time looking out the window, and I realized, uh, being in Europe, that uh, I was looking out the window, and I was watching people on the streets, and I I was like, you know what? I just noticed all of a sudden everybody everybody here in London is is thin. And they're doing a lot of walking around. They're all on foot, right? So everybody in the course of their day, there was very few people driving. Everybody was walking and using public transportation and, and walking around. And then I can I remember on, on another occasion in that same trip that I uh, stopped at a place to get something to eat. And I was craving a, like a soda, Pepsi, a Coke, something like that. And I, and I said to the lady, I said, you know, I need a large Coke. And she took a cup that looked like a small or a medium size. And I said, no, no, I want a large. And she said, she didn't like correct me and, and say, oh, no, offer like a 32-ounce size or even a 24-ounce size. 
All she said was, you don't need that much soda or nobody needs that much soda. And she just put, you know, filled it up. And, you know, it struck me on that trip. And then a, and a secondary thing that hit me was recently Anna and I took a, uh, a trip to Palm Springs. Um, my agent lives in Palm Springs and we went to, you know, spend a weekend and, and talk to him and and be there in Palm Springs and get out of the cold and the rain. And we were just there for a couple of days. But um, Anna said the same thing, like all of these retirees who moved to Palm Springs uh, to uh, retire, they're all like tan, first of all, and they're playing golf and they're playing pickleball and they're playing tennis. They're active and they're tan. And I guess, you know, their job all day long is to go to Pilates and go for walks and play golf and, you know, walk, you know, do their morning walk and do their evening walk and everybody's fit. Everybody's in shape. And I said to her, I said, you know what, you know what it is? Because all these 60s and 70s and 80s, this is all they have to do is, hey, just stay in shape. It's much like the Europeans over in London. Anyway, I don't know why that was on my mind, but it was. And here I'll give you Gary Player talking about uh, you know, Americans and how we're out of control with childhood obesity. I had him on this show years ago. Legendary golfer Gary Player had just posed for the ESPN The Magazine. Remember the body issue that ESPN The Magazine put out? And Gary Player and you know Serena Williams and a bunch of athletes had posed for it, but Player... You know, in his 70s, posing in this magazine, uh, joined this show. This was seven, eight years ago. But, I mean, it was really the best thing I did in a long time because my big message to America, look, you've got the best farmers in the world. You've got the best country in the world. You've got the best doctors in the world. And you're the most unhealthy nation in the world and the most obese nation in the world. I don't know how you're going to pay for all this medicine and medical aid or all these healthcare systems. You're too sick. You're going to have 100 million Americans with diabetes in 40 years' time. It's an epidemic. I mean, can't people see this? We've got to get children to exercise. Parents, when they see their children are fat, for God's sake, do something about it. Don't just leave them. I don't know why that. there's truth in that and what he's saying, for sure. Like, hey, we should all pay attention to our health and, you know, our children's health, and we should be more active, and we should eat better, and we should focus on diet and exercise. I mean, it's no mystery. Like, there's certain things you don't have control of. You don't have control of kind of your genetics, right? Uh, but you have control of your diet, and you have control of the amount of exercise that you get on a daily basis. And, and look, I'll be the first to tell you, like, during the early part of the pandemic, I really got into fitness and working out and riding the bike and all. And then over a period of time, like, through isolation and not seeing people and not being able to go into the gym, I found myself going, I better get off my stool here and get uh, get moving around because if I don't, like nobody's going to do that for you. But I don't know why I find that so wildly entertaining. Maybe it's how abrasive Gary Player is, but maybe also it's the honesty that's buried in his message because it's true. We got to do something about it. All right. Uh, we Every day on the program, we give you our big splash. Today's big splash comes out of the NBA where Kevin Durant made his debut. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Brought to you by the Exogen Twice Daily Thermometer. Kevin Durant scored 23 points, shooting 10 of 15 from the floor. He had six rebounds, played only 27 minutes for the Phoenix Suns, but they won in his debut, defeating the Hornets. 105 to 91. Yeah, it was weird to see Kevin Durant in a Phoenix Suns uniform, but he still looked like Kevin Durant. Devin Booker led all scorers in the game. He scored 37 and had seven assists for the Suns. 
be interesting to see uh, how the Suns look, but they look pretty good in the debut of Kevin Durant. And that is our big splash, the one thing you need to know. I'm still caught up on uh, Gary Player and his remarks about obesity. It is harsh. Anna's popped into the studio, and it's harsh to hear Gary Player talking about fat kids running around America, but he's right. Um, you know, from an outsider perspective, uh, Gary Player made at that time um, diabetes and childhood obesity is kind of his platform. I don't blame him for ranting. There are worse things that you could rant about, and I think we need to hear that. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Uh, we've got diet issues in terms of what we eat as a country. Um, I, I'm not so much concerned about how people look as far as that, but I'm more concerned about just their general health. Like, I think we can all agree that, you know, there's a lot of different body types. We're all shaped differently, and that's fine. Like, I obviously, we love and accept all types, right? But then there's kind of like the health issue, which is staring us in the face, which is, you know, all the issues that are tied, like he said, to diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and, you know, high blood pressure, all of, like, the long-term health issues that come with how we eat and how we live. And, you know, that that is undeniable. Like, I, I feel like we all, I, I mean, I'm not saying, like, it's an us-and-them situation. It's like we all are addicted to sugar, and a lot of other things that, you know, are concerning that we consume on a daily basis and we're not even, like, thinking about it. And I'm in that category, too. Look, we look at a lot of professional athletes who have nutritionists. They have, uh, you know, they're really careful about what they put into their bodies. Gary Player, you know, he's 10 years old now. He's from South Africa. When About the time he came on the show, he's, like, 80. So he's still channeling a little bit of um, elderly rage, their old person's rage. But I didn't blame the rant. Like, it's not, there's worse things you could rant about than by telling people, hey, take a look. If you have a kid who's inactive, if you have a kid who is already battling obesity, like, be on high alert. Because, yeah, you're right. And I mentioned this earlier that, you know, there is, you can't control your genetics, but you can control what you put in your body and you can control how active you are. And I look, I do this radio show three hours a day, and sometimes I will get off my feet and go, hey, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit for the next half hour because it's really easy for me to sit. For three hours in a row, not move, have a cup of coffee with a bunch of sugar and cream in it, and do this radio show and do whatever. And and we journalists know better than anybody. It's not like we have a lunch hour. Like uh, often in my newspaper career, you know, I looked around the press box and I was like, this is not a healthy bunch. Like I can remember at, uh, a Cal football game years and years and years ago I covered, and the, all the sports writers were leaving the stadium. We're all going down the steps. We're climbing the hills around you know, Telegraph uh, Avenue and trying to get back to the media parking lot. And I was just like, you know what? We need to be eating better. We don't need to be eating hot dogs and chili in the press box. We all should be exercising between quarters. But I think it's a good reminder. But here's the question I have. Here's the question I have. Is it any of our business? Because Gary Player is making like a public statement to, to America. And so it's not offending any one person. But how difficult is it if you have to have a conversation with someone you care about who has unhealthy habits or maybe has put on a few pounds? At what point, how tactful can you be in having that conversation? It's really hard. I mean, it's hard to even have that conversation with yourself and to be honest with yourself, like about, you know, how you eat. And let's face it, like, you know, as a news reporter, that was some of the most unhealthy eating that I did because my life on the road involved a lot of fast food 
And a lot of like, I made myself like basically the connoisseur of all JoJo's at convenience stations, convenience stores and gas stations around the state and the region. Um, I could tell you where all the best JoJo's are. But, you know, and th- for JoJo's, can you explain to, I didn't know what a JoJo was until you told me years ago to explain what JoJo's are. I know. It's so bizarre to me. We call them JoJo's here. They're like those potato wedges that you get at like a Minute Mart in you know silverton or something like the the, the and the, and the smaller the town the better the jojo tastes that's what i found um <laughs> but you know any parent knows like it's a daily struggle the daily struggle to not have your kids consume just a a sick amount of sugar is uh is real because like every holiday every school celebration everything now has to do with candy whether it's valentine's day or easter or christmas or I guess like Thanksgiving, maybe the only one where you get away with like some pumpkin pie. I don't know. But it's like every celebration is just laden with so much sugar. And you try, like you try as a parent to limit it. But, you know, it's hard. It's a struggle. I think the biggest thing that I have found is that if we just don't have it in the house, like to limit, you know, because it's really easy to accumulate that crap. And let's be real, like that. That food that is uh, empty calorie, high sugar, a lot of it's cheap. And that's that's a whole nother conversation about sugar. There's so many documentaries out there about the stuff. But anyway, Gary Player spitting some truth out there. Hope nobody's offended by that. But, you know, uh, it's something to file away. I think about it. I think about it because, you know, I'm locked up in this studio. And I'm like, I better get out. And I better walk around a little bit or I'm not going to do that today. What? What? I think about it because at night, your nickname for me is Snacks. I don't know what happens to me, but, like, between the hours of, like, 8.30 and by the time I fall asleep, like, 10, 10.30, I consume more calories in that two-hour window than I do for the whole rest of the day. I turn into, like, this weird munch monster. Yeah, but you're eating seaweed. It's not, those are, that's a low-calorie, like, organic patchouli oil uh, you know, I don't like the taste of seaweed, and you're eating that dried seaweed, which is like eating, yeah, like your mouth's all gummy, and you're. It's just uh, to me, that's not that's not a bad snack. And yeah, I call you snacks because you're eating snacks, and you're over there munching on your seaweed. All right, leave it here. Coming up, uh, we've got the CEO of the Knight Commission, uh, a former college basketball star who's trying to help the NCAA find its way. That's next, right after this break. BFFT From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. You've heard of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. Uh, the CEO of the Knight Commission is Amy Perko. She's a former college basketball player. Uh, you played it. You played at Wake Forest, correct? I did. March Madness is coming along. Your juices have to get going. Absolutely. I, this time of year is always exciting. You know, having played in the ACC tournament uh, myself and and had great memories of those days. So I'm just like any fan this time of year. Love uh, love March and all the great basketball we get to see. You are uh, underselling yourself. Wake Forest Hall of Famer Amy Perko is our guest. <laughs> Uh, did you grow up like in the driveway playing hoops? Who were your influences? Absolutely. I, I grew up uh, shooting on my driveway goal and um, 
you know, really always uh, dreamed of playing at Wake Forest. My my father had gone to Wake Forest and and grew up uh, really one of the role models was Skip Brown. He was a great player at, at Wake Forest. So uh, he was my imaginary teammate. Many many games on the um, on the goal there in the in the driveway and and um, you know it's one of those cool things as a kid when you practice shooting last second shots and. And my junior year at Wake Forest, I hit a last-second shot in the ACC tournament. Um, and so that's that's one of the great memories I have. Love that. And uh, certainly you, you have to look now at the opportunities. I have three daughters, and I'm looking at the opportunities for women in professional sports and really seeing some positive things happening there. But yesterday, Charlie Baker took over as the new NCAA president. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about how the Knight Commission can work with the NCAA or what role it plays. Let's start there. For people who don't know what the Knight Commission does or or aims to do, uh, how do you what do you tell people when they ask that? Yeah, we are an independent think tank. We're funded by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and we have a legacy of influencing. Um, NCAA policies and institutional practices that really put the focus on college athletes' education, health, safety, and success. One of the um, recommendations we made uh, more than a decade ago now that the NCAA adopted and that really relates well to March Madness is that in order to be eligible for March Madness, teams have to be on track to graduate at least half their players. And that was a policy that originated with with our research and and our uh, policy design. You know, I, when I start thinking about things that are important to to both programs and and fans, uh, name, image, likeness, NIL, it feels like the Wild West. What what is the Knight Commission's stance on NIL, and how how can you help? Yeah, great question. Uh, just a little history in terms of. Being an independent think tank, uh, we try to, you know, see what issues are coming. And, and we actually held the first ever national conversation and invited athletes uh, to the table in 2008, a long time ago before this ever became reality. And at that time, the issues were really just around video games and, and the avatars that were starting to look an awful lot like the actual players. So it's certainly an issue that we followed for a long time. We did put out principles that we hoped the NCA would adopt back in April 2020 um, that, that were really framed around allowing athletes, just like any other student, to have the opportunity to um, be compensated for the use of their name, image, likeness. We, our, our principles would have um, provided more guardrails than what currently exists. And, and there was an NCA task force that had similar um, uh, thoughts as ours. Unfortunately, the NCAA uh, decided not to act when it could have been really ahead of, of what ultimately happened with state laws being passed that, that pushed the NCAA into a reactive mode. Um, and so, you know, again, it is chaotic. Uh, it's very clear that the uh, the basic prohibition that's out there that that um, NIL should not be used as a recruiting inducement is being violated and and openly violated. So it's still you know an open question in terms of whether the NCA will actually enforce its its fundamental rule, and we we hope that they will. I keep hearing from athletic directors in particular that hey they need congressional intervention. 
Is that the solution, or should does the NCAA have the ability to come in and, and be more effective? Um, well, our, our, our belief is that they, they do have the ability to enforce their prohibition on that it cannot be used as a recruiting inducement. There's, there's not any state law that, that allows that. Um, so they've just been reluctant and risk averse at this point. Um, but, you know, we'll see. They, they have put out some new guidelines and said they're going to start enforcing it. Um, so we'll see. And, and I think, you know, again, if, if at some point you're going to, the NCA will be sued again. And at some point you have to, um, be willing to, to do that and to stand on principle. And then if, and then if the NCA loses, they will have more of a case to get help from Congress. But, but again, in the big picture of, uh, NIL and other things, we think there's so many things the NCAA can, can do without an act of Congress. And it needs to show that, that it's ready to provide that leadership to do it. Amy Perko is our guest. She is the CEO of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. Let me ask you just in general with, you know, what will be, I guess, a new, era of NCAA, Charlie Baker coming in, did did it raise eyebrows that they went with a lawmaker or a politician, or it, it seems to be a, a diversion from the normal campus, uh, you know, Emmert era presidency? Well, um, I, you know, I think it's a real positive to have a fresh perspective uh, and, and someone who's not only been involved in politics, but just as a leader of, of complex organizations and and someone who has background as a as a college athlete, um, but but clearly the the presidents um, uh, who hired Charlie Baker on on the board of governors um, feel that you know the top priority for the NCAA is to work um, you know with Congress to try to receive some uh, legislative solutions. Uh, for the challenges ahead, the, you know, I, I want to ask you about the playoff, the college football playoff. Uh, it's independently managed, but the members of the NCAA get to sit behind that shield, that legal shield of the NCAA's protection. FBS mm-hmm. football, a uh, lot of money in that playoff. The NCAA gets none of it. Uh, how? What's the Knight Commission's stance on that? Yeah, thanks for asking the question because that is uh, an issue we've been talking about for some time, and, and it's we have found that that is probably the most misunderstood um, fact in all of college sports, misunderstood by fans and, frankly, misunderstood by university presidents and lawmakers. Um, the NCA receives zero in revenues from FBS football. The NCA's money is made through the basketball tournaments, um, and it distributes that money back to the schools. Um, we're looking at with the with the CFP, and yet, despite that, that the the college football playoff is outside the NCAA. The NCAA still pays for all the legal services for FBS football and all of significant national services, um, and the college football playoff. With its expansion, it's going to generate two billion in annual revenues in just uh, several years. That that amount of annual revenues from that uh, football playoff is going to soar past what the NCAA generates. Um, so our position has been, um, you know, college football has done a lot of great things um, with with 
um, its popularity, uh, the opportunity it provides, but it's time to, to provide some accountability for those revenues and to better align the structure so that the revenue is actually coupled with the expense, which is frankly just common sense uh, business management practices. Yeah, and I, I, people have always asked me about the money from the playoff, and they, I think they assume it's the same as the basketball tournament, but it is a, it is a very different model there, and I always will hear people say, hey, look at all the money the NCAA is making, I, and not in football. Um, you also you know, have talked a lot, I think, in recent weeks about gender and racial inequities in March Madness when it comes to the distribution of that, that NCAA tournament revenue. What, what do you mean there? Um, so, the, so the NCAA March Madness um, does generate a billion dollars a year, um, and, and actually a couple things there. Let me point out some good. That, that money provides championship opportunities for in over 90, 90 championships in lots of different sports, including uh, Division II football and Division III football. Those championships are provided through March Madness money. But the NCAA sends uh, about $600 million um, back to the Division I schools uh, through that uh, those revenues. And a significant portion, about $170 million every year, is rewarded to schools and conferences based on the performance just of their men's basketball teams. And the bottom line is for a, a nonprofit, um, higher education, athletics-related association um, that, that has it as its constitutional principle that it will operate in a gender-equitable way. Um, the NCAA is violating that constitutional principle by, by rewarding athletic performance only in a men's sport. So there, there's two simple solutions. Uh, they, they need to change the revenue distribution, so they also reward performance in women's sports as well, um, or they just do away with the athletic performance rewards. So, again, it's a, it's a solution and recommendation we made uh, back in 2021, and the NCAA had hired at that time, as you might recall, there were some pretty glaring inequities in their March Madness tournaments, and they hired a law firm to, to uh, give them their own assessment. And the law firm also um, you know, concurred with, with what we've been saying is that the NCAA needs to change its revenue distribution um, to eliminate and correct that gender inequity. It's fascinating to me, a billion dollars in basketball nothing from the college football playoff i mean it, it just it seems like uh, the universities and the conferences went hey we need to make money and we don't need to include the ncaa in this and but yet they they hide behind the shield of the ncaa all the time uh we're talking with amy perko she's the ceo of the knight commission um the governing board of the ncaa uh conflicts of interest uh athlete and he health and safety issues how do you fix the overall governance of the NCAA? Well, one of the basic uh, solutions that, that we feel uh, should be done is to have independent directors on the Division I policymaking board. Um, and, you know, just why, why, that, why is that important? Because, again, the policies and the way the money is distributed, uh, the policies around the NIL, you know, the policies that impact athletes, there, there needs to be more of an athlete voice, number one, on that board. 
Um, and right now there is student athlete on the board. It's primarily university presidents. Um, and, and they, you know, they vote with their institution and conference self-interest. So we have recommended that there be at least one independent director that's an expert on health and safety issues, that there be more athlete voice and that, that those athlete voices also, uh, represent gender equity across the board. Um, and that there also be some other independent directors. Um, so again, to eliminate that, um, what, what we've seen as the, the governing board that kind of clings to the status quo and protects, um, protects the conference and the power five interest. So we think, you know, just like as a common practice with, uh, university boards having independent directors, the NCAA division one board should also have independent directors. Amy, I really appreciate what you guys are doing um, in the oversight that you and the recommendations you have provided. Um, I also want to remind our listeners, we're talking to a four-year starter at Wake Forest, Hall of Famer at Wake Forest. You also worked as a associate AD at Kansas. I got to ask you, we have a lot of Pac-12 listeners, what you make of expansion, realignment, what you think about the chaos of the last six months. Well, just a, an overall takeaway, and, you know, the realignment has been going on for some time, and, you know, what, what really, what, what's happened with realignment is the conferences have realigned to, to make their media contract more lucrative around really the sport of FBS football and that, that media footprint for FBS football. And again, it goes back to what, what may be in the best interest of that particular sport and that what may work for that sport may not be in the best interest for all the other sports. So, you know, there, there, there are certainly some institutions where it's worked out very well for, for all the sports, but it's unfortunate that we've kind of built, built a box and a model that, you know, may work well for one, but not, not be the best for others. But that's that's unfortunately where where we are and so we've been looking for you know different solutions that will will work in the best interest of of providing you know just a great opportunity for student athletes regardless of sport and so you know looking in the future there may be uh you know a different model where where uh conferences and and an association um like we we've proposed that fbs football have its own governing entity and and if it did that then the ncaa controls all the other sports you wouldn't necessarily have to have um some of the multi-sport conference uh, alignments that that you currently have and that frankly may not be in the best interest of all the other sports you graduated from college in the 80s. I have to ask you, you know, WNBA exists at that time. You, you're a draft pick in that in that league. You know, what did you think when, you know, you see players and you see today's game with Sabrina Inescu, A lot of people in our region root for her and and the health of that league. Well, it's, it's been great just seeing the growth of um, women's sports across the board and, and the WNBA, the, the soccer league, and just the popularity of, um, you know, all, all of those, um, you know, opportunities that didn't exist when, when I played and, and just the impact that that has. So it's, it's just been, you know, again, I, I have, um, we have daughters and, you know, seeing them grow up and see how they, 
you know, have been able to see, have more opportunities, has just been wonderful. And we want to, you know, what college sports provides all these opportunities uh, with, again, all the money we've been talking about that's coming in, we want to see that going to, you know, the collective good of what college sports can bring to, to so many young men and women and, and what it also brings for universities. Um, what what we fear, you know, happening is is less emphasis on broad based opportunities and and you know sports that that aren't the high profile uh, media sports, but but those sports are important as well to to the entire um, you know ecosystem and, and opportunity and all the things all the, all the good things that we think sport provides. Amy Perko, CEO of the Knight Commission. Thank you for your time. Appreciate you. Thank you. There she is, CEO of the Knight Commission. Coming up, Anna's going to pop into the studio later in the show. John Wilner of the San Jose Mercury News. Plus, I'll talk about Dee Uyunglele and Bo Nix. Compare them. Who has uh, more reason to be excited this college football season? Duck fan, Beaver fan. Leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I think the NCAA's got lots of blind spots. I think you can look at the governing body of college athletics and you can find that they were out of touch with athletes on name, image, likeness. Probably did a uh, terrible job. I mean, not probably. They did a terrible job in making athletes. And and I think women, they were too slow to create uh, equitable uh, NCAA tournaments. And, and, uh, you know, the whole NCAA model wobbled, and we have seen it now with name, image, likeness, and the transfer portal kind of get off the rails. Great interview in the last segment with the CEO of the Knight Commission. They're trying to do some things to alert the NCAA to its problems. Um, and uh, I think much in the same way that Gary Player was trying to alert America that uh, we've got a problem with obesity. Um, the Knight Commission's going, hey, you got an issue, you're the NCAA. You might want to take a look at yourself, take a look in the mirror. You've got a blind spot here. On that note, I was on Twitter last night, and I was following the Pelicans-Blazers game, and I was uh, checking out, you know, what else is going on in sports. And I saw that uh, Mandalorian was trending, Anna. Anna's popped in the studio, just so you guys know that. Everybody on their best behavior. But Mandalorian, um, I don't – I have a blind spot when it comes to that show – and I have some other blind spots kind of in my, do you call that pop culture? Do you call that entertainment? I don't know what genre you call that, you know, in, but I, uh, for people who are of my age, um, let's just back way up and talk about Star Wars. It's a Star Wars thing, right? Like Disney spun that off into its own show. Is that what Mandalorian is? I believe so. You also have a blind spot when it comes to that. Okay. So that's what it is. But I, I saw that, like, what is this? And. And then I thought, you know, why haven't I got into that? And I'll tell you why. I don't have time for it. I'm busy with kids and I'm busy with sports. I think we all have blind spots. So I want to talk about those blind spots in general. And some of it is like, you know, we've talked over the years about the movie Bull Durham. And I remember we had Alabama Adriana. She'd never seen Bull Durham. And we said, stop what you're doing. Quit answering phones. Quit editing audio. Sit in the studio and watch Bull Durham. And she did. She got paid to watch that movie one day. But... I have blind spots, too, because I I consider the Star Wars series to be the original Star Wars, 
and, uh, you know, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, you know. And then when they got into more and more and more Star Wars, I I went, no, 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 no. I can't do the prequel of the prequel of the prequel. I'm losing touch with the series. And Mandalorian, too much for me. And it might be terrific. I'm not saying it's not good. I just don't have room for it in my brain. Yeah, uh, I'm with you there. Uh, I would say that my blind spot uh, is just kind of, there's a whole era of music, like American music, that most people who grew up in America know, and I don't know it. Like, uh, Hall and Oates, like, am I, I don't even know. I think I'm saying that right. Like, I grew, I grew up in an Asian household. I did have my stepdad, Fred, who's American. And so, like, thanks to him, I know the names, like, Jim Messina and uh, Rolling Stones, like, have a general sense of these very American bands, like Bob Dylan, I want to say, is in there, too. Um, Simon and Garfunkel, maybe. But I'm saying just, like, there's a whole, like, a few decades there where if you name the song or you try to get me to talk about the musical artists of that time, I, I just draw a complete blank. Oh, okay. Is that? That's Hall and Oates. Okay. You know it. You know Hall and Oates. I, 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 I guess I do know that. I, I didn't know that that was Hall and Oates. Like, it's not, it's not embedded in my consciousness like it is for so many other Americans. Yeah, but see, and I think that it's a blind spot, right? We all have them, and I think some people have like like I have a blind I have a bit of a blind spot in sports. I have a blind spot for the NHL hockey. I didn't grow up loving hockey. I grew up watching the 1980 Olympic hockey team play hockey, but I didn't grow up like having an NHL team because in my childhood, hockey was Canada's thing. It was a Canadian thing, and it was a thing that happened in you know like the the New York Rangers and you know the Buffalo Sabers, and it was kind of a Northern America. Northeastern America and Canadian sport. But now we know hockey's all over the country, and some of the best teams are teams that are in hot weather areas. And so I had to pick up hockey and learn a little bit about hockey, but I still got to be honest. Like, I know way more, and I'm way more comfortable talking about the NFL, Major League Baseball, basketball, college sports, and other things. But it kind of reminds me, like, when um, when uh, I'm covering an Olympics, okay? I've covered five Olympics, and somebody goes, uh, hey, uh, Mariel Zunigas from Beaverton is fencing. She's in the gold medal match. Get over to fencing. And on my way to fencing, I'm looking at people in the media shuttle, and I'm going, hey, you, you know anything about fencing? Tell me how you score fencing. Like, you really quickly try to get yourself up to speed. But I think you know Hall and & Oates, and I think you know Bob Dylan, and I think you know the Rolling Stones, but you just don't, you know, you don't know it like you know what. Like, what? You don't know it like you know seaweed. You don't know it like you know what. <laughs> You know what I mean? Well, like, but give me a different era of music, and I can I can sing Wilson Phillips to you. I can sing like Timmy T's One Hit Wonder, One More Try. Like I can I can do Mariah Carey and Paula Abdul, <laughs> but like preceding all of that, I'm a little bit lost on music, artists, lyrics, and such. <laughs> Yeah, like that's my jam. Like that, I can do. Well, give me Wilson Phillips all day long. Do, but do you think like our like because Wilson Phillips, Timmy T, whatever it is you're talking about, 
Like, it's not, that's not the Rolling Stones. That's not Hall and Oates. That's not Bob Dylan. Like, that's, like, I don't think Wilson, do you think Wilson Phillips is going into the Hall of Fame somewhere and then we're going to turn to our kids and go, you don't know, is, hold on. Like, you don't know that song. Like, nobody's going to say that, but you look at the Rolling Stones, you look at Hall and Oates, you look at Simon and Garfunkel, you look at the Beatles. If you don't know those songs, you do have a blind spot. And part of me was, I picked up my music of, the, like, the 1960s and 1970s because my mom had a record player. And when I was a kid, I liked to put on a record and turn it on. Like, I was more interested in what is going on with the needle and the record and how does that make sound. And, and my mom had all the records, and so I learned some of the songs that way, but I also have kind of a bit of a blind spot with some of the music, probably of your era and your generation, because I was watching and listening to sports. And I'll never forget my dad, I mean, embarrassed me in the worst way. Every Everybody's got a, st- a story where their parents embarrass them. But mine came uh, when I was in, I was probably 14. I was maybe... Uh, going, in, I was either eighth grader, 13, 14, or I was going into high school. And I, in the town I grew up in, Gilroy, California, the garlic capital of the world, we had one kind of electronic store, a Radio Shack, and we had like a Long's Drugs, like kind of depart, like you know, you know, everybody knows Long's Drugs or Walgreens or whatever. Okay, and so I wanted to buy a boombox. Okay, it was a big deal to me. I'm I'm like 14 years old. Music is becoming bigger in my life. And my dad says, you know, if you do all this yard work, X, Y, Z, I'll take you down and we'll get you a boom box today. OK, so <laughs> I, I uh, did the work that was necessary to earn that thing. And my dad takes me down to the Long's Drugs and behind the counter happens to be a high school aged girl who was kind of cute. OK, she's behind the counter. I walk in. I'm embarrassed enough that I'm with my dad. OK, uh, my dad says uh, she says, how can I help you? And my, uh, I say, well, I'm here to look at a boombox. You know, I'm kind of looking at my shoe tops, you know. And uh, my dad's uh, kind of standing quietly off to the side. And you know you know my dad. He's going to say something at some point that is going to embarrass me. So, um, it, you know, as I'm looking and examining, like, the one that has one cassette player, the one that has dual cassettes, like you can record music, she is doing her job as a salesperson, okay? She's probably 16, 17, and she's doing the best job she can to sell this boombox. And my dad, as she's saying, here's one thing. It's got an FM. If you like to listen to music, whatever. My dad exclaims that I don't listen to music. I only listen to sports games. And I turned red as a beat. Like, I was just embarrassed by that. Did your mom ever embarrass you in a scenario like that? Because I was like, Dad, like, you know telling this girl that I don't listen to music that I that I only like I'm kind of a sports geek and I'm I'm listening to sports did your mom ever put you in a situation like that or or was that just your childhood in general uh, my whole childhood was basically my mom embarrassing me but you know god bless her uh she didn't know just like most parents know like <clears throat> she would uh she would often get on the phone you know like I'd be on the phone for hours and hours with some boy when I was in high school or middle school and she had no problem picking the phone on the other end of the line and telling me that it was time to get off the phone. It's time to do my Chinese homework and my English homework, like, you know, both languages. Uh, and I was in trouble. And, yeah, there was a lot of that. Well, that's what parents are supposed to do. That's why I'm gearing up for that, especially with these two younger ones. 
I'll be sure to uh, be sure to take them somewhere and uh, embarrass them in a way that all parents should embarrass kids. All right, we have so much more ahead, including an interview with John Wilner, San Jose Mercury News, Barrio News Group. Uh, I'm going to talk more about why readers were mad at me, and I ranked the Pac-12 quarterbacks yesterday. All of that and uh, more with Anna still ahead right here on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, last night at Moda Center, the New Orleans Pelicans beat the Trailblazers 121 to 110. We've been talking a lot about kind of the struggles of the Blazers and the predicament that they find themselves in. They're totally in a predicament in that they've got a really good player in Damian Lillard who scored 41 points last night on 22 shots, um, made 15 of his 16 free throws, and, you know, he did everything he could. But the Blazers get beat by 11, had a a bad fourth quarter, got beat badly in the fourth, um, and lose the game uh, at home. The Pelicans are in front of the Trailblazers in the Western Conference. They're one of those teams that sits in front of the Blazers. Um, But uh, the regular season series between these two teams is now tied one game apiece. Um, But it was in evidence last night as we were watching the Blazers lose at, you know, just the supporting cast that the Blazers have in a starting lineup that, you know, is Drew Eubanks and... And uh, Anthony Simons only had four points in 20 minutes, and it's it's uh, it's tricky, really tricky. Jeremy Grant and Damian Lillard combined for 69 points, and meanwhile, you look over at New Orleans, and it's uh, it's 40 points for Brandon Ingram. It's C.J. McCollum making his triumphant return to Portland. He scores 24, and you know he has seven assists and does what C.J. McCollum does. And it's just a reminder. I mean, just of the lack of balance in the Blazers roster uh, once again and and uh, we've been lamenting the coaching we've been lamenting the broken roster I closed yesterday's show with reality check for for the Blazers like if you look at this organization I'm you know I'm, I don't mean to harp on this but it's it's true like there's a congruency of vision that has to happen for teams that are going to win I talked about this earlier in the show I'm going to hit it again that you need to have alignment between your ownership your general manager your coach your roster you know, all the way down, like, you know, there are no accidents. The NBA Finals, there are no accidents in the Super Bowl. There are, the World Series winner is not accidental. The Kentucky Derby winner is not accidental, right? Stuff happens in sports, but good teams that are balanced and focused and have congruency of vision, they rise to the top over time. And that's why you play an 82-game schedule, and that's why 162 games in baseball gives us the best teams. And this is playing out with the Trailblazers in a way that isn't good. You with the Blazers. Let's talk about that congruency of vision for just a second. You've got an owner who really isn't an owner in Jody Allen. She's a trustee. She doesn't love this team. She didn't buy this team. She's not invested in this team. She inherited this team as a trustee. She doesn't, you know, didn't even truly inherit it. She's just managing it for now in a air quotes here ownership way. That's tricky. That's really hard. And I wouldn't anticipate any team that was in this situation to have massive success you just don't have uh there's no rudder on the ship you know there's no motor on the ship it's just kind of adrift right now and so you have that with ownership then you've got a general manager and joe cronin who is a first-time gm who's been promoted 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 from within and we all know that you know that's generally not how you get ambitious hungry qualified people in position i like it 
but I don't love it. And if it were a great owner and a great roster, you could probably get away with growing a GM internally in your in your organization. But, you know, you have Joe Cronin, who's got really limited experience as a sitting GM. Then you've got a head coach in Chauncey Billups, who's in his second year. He's Before this, he had never been a head coach. Not qualified. Not qualified to be a head coach. And, and it's not – it's just that's the fact. So no owner. GM is brand new and green behind the ears. You got a coach who's green, and now you have a broken roster. And so you put those things together. Like, what do you expect is going to happen if you're a Blazer fan? So happy for the Pelicans. Kind of happy for C.J. McCollum because he's in a better place, right? He's with an organization that is a couple of games in front of the Blazers in the Western Conference standings. But, you know, I truly felt like last night, like we saw C.J. go at the trade deadline last year. So it's been a year that he's been gone. His house, you know, we mentioned his house the other day. He, he owned one of the Street of Dreams houses in West Lynn, and he, you know, he and his wife sold the house, it, you know, finally sold. And so I kind of feel like a chapter with C.J. McCollum has come to an end. But it was a reminder last night at Moda Center of what the Blazers aren't because they aren't balanced. They don't have that depth. And, Anna, I know you're sitting here listening to me kind of drone on about the woes of the Blazers. Man, I really want this franchise to get it together. I think Blazer fans deserve that, you know, and and I and look, I liked C.J. McCollum as a player. I didn't love him at the salary he was making with the Blazers, but he was a guy when you would see him play or even see him in passing somewhere, you go, okay, uh, that's one of the good guys. Like I do think C.J. McCollum did a lot right and was easy for Blazer fans to root for. And and I remember you went on a walk and ran into C.J. who was working with his new puppy. Just walking down the street. I was actually running. It was a rare occurrence in which I was actually doing more than just a brisk ambulatory walk. And uh, I happened to be running on a path that, you know, I passed, I ran past him. And it was one of those things where it's like, wait, did I just pass? Did I just pass CJ McCollum? And I turned back and I looked and sure enough, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, that is him. And he had this adorable little dog. Uh, it was, I think, before it was before they had the baby. And <laughs> I laughed because as I was running, I kind of looked back a couple times just because, you know, he's famous and, like, I was looking. And he could not get his dog to walk. Like, the dog was refusing, was, like, rebelling. And it was like, nope, I am not taking another step. And ultimately, I think I, I saw CJ pick up the dog. I, I don't know what kind of dog it was, but he ultimately just picked it up and just carried it and uh, gave up on the idea of walking, at least in that moment on that afternoon. We've all been there. For anybody who's had a pet has been there in that moment. But it's one of those things where, like, he was relatable. And I think that's what you're getting at. Like, you're going for your run and you see him and he's having a issue with the dog. Like, that's very relatable. And I think... You know, CJ has been on this show a number of times over the years. We should try to get him back on. I probably should have got him on in front of the game uh, last night. But it was just a reminder. I mean, you know, look, players come, players go. We understand it's a business. Um, I do think the Blazers were taking a step in the right direction last year at the trade deadline in that they were kind of acknowledging that, hey, this wasn't working, that, that the era had kind of run its course in the same way that, Terry Stotts could be a really good coach who got a lot out of his players. The The era felt stale. And so I did support that the Blazers made moves. I, d I think they didn't, you know, they didn't get tremendous value for the players that they 
ended up letting go. But, um, you know, that era with C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard in the backcourt, it was evident that, like, the ceiling for that era was, you know, getting to, like, the first and second round of the playoffs. They did get to the Western Conference Finals once, didn't win any games there, but it wasn't like they were going somewhere big. And we all kind of had that sense, I think, in watching, you know, uh, what was an undersized backcourt that was fun to watch on the offensive end of the court try to do the best that they could on the court. All right, coming up, uh, we'll have the 5 at 5 at the top of the hour. John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group will be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour. Uh, So much more ahead on the Bald Face Truth. The Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Philadelphia Eagles have submitted a proposal to the NFL's competition committee asking that players be allowed to wear the jersey number zero. Uh, Zero and double zero used to be allowed in the NFL. Raiders Hall of Fame center Jim Otto, for example, rocked the double zero for 14 seasons. Otto is legendary. In fact, we had Jim Otto on the show back in the day. I love saying that. I love when we had like a pro football Hall of Famer. You know, Otto came on the show and talked about uh, his injuries and what it felt like to get out of bed and having his foot amputated and all this stuff. But it was awful example of how the league failed to take care of its retired players. But uh, the NFL now wants to add zero. And as Anna pointed out to me, fresh off the Philadelphia Eagles Super Bowl loss, this is where their mind is. You know what? We need, uh, we need to, since we came up with a zero in the Super Bowl, we need to, <laughs> we need to uh, allow the number zero on uniforms. Uh, the NCAA allows zero, as people may know. Back in 2020, they made a rule change that allowed players to wear zero. Um, the NFL does allow wide receivers, running backs, linebackers, and defensive backs to wear single-digit jersey numbers. The Eagles are pushing this proposal. If it's passed, um, zero, I I think, does zero count as a single-digit number? That's a single digit. Zero is a single digit. It has no value, though. Math teachers out there uh, tweet at me, but... But it counts as a single digit, so I would hypothesize that zero would be worn only by defensive backs, linebackers, running backs, wide receivers, um, and uh, quarterbacks, right? So because they can, they're the only players that can wear single digits, and not everyone. But this issue is on the agenda for the NFL's competition committee to review and discuss and uh, pr- propose uh, maybe to vote on a week. Other rule changes the NFL is considering are making roughing the passer a reviewable call and an alternative onside kick proposal and bring back the third quarterback rule. Uh, Washington Post saying that the third quarterback rule uh, came out of the 49ers problems uh, in the NFC Championship game. So San Francisco would have had the ability to use a third quarterback. Anna, where are you on all these rules and the number zero in the NFL? Uh, I don't know about the rest of the rules, but I think the double zero thing and the zero thing is really interesting considering that the Eagles are still kind of drowning in their sorrows. I I mean, it caught my eye because I also saw a video of Nick Sirianni 
like throwing back a lineup of Jaeger shots at a bar in New Jersey over the weekend. Like he was, he's apparently still drowning the sorrows of the Super Bowl loss. There's video of him just pulling up to the tavern with his friends and literally lugging four beers. He drinks Miller Lite, by the way, back to his table. And not just that, like he agrees to do some shots of Jaeger. Jaeger? Jaeger? Of all shots, Jaeger? That's the one he chose. That had to be a bet. That feels like a bet. Like if you're taking Jaeger shots and you're drinking Miller Lite or Miller and whatever, and you are like of a Super Bowl loss. Um, I used to, uh, when they originally changed the rule and college players were wearing it, um, you know, I didn't like it because it wasn't traditional, but it, I very quickly forgot about it. And so there's some things like that I, at face value, I would, no, come on, that's not tradition. Like with the NFL allowing linebackers to wear single-digit numbers, you know, that's not traditional, but you very quickly forget about it and you focus on the football. So I think it's one of these cosmetic things that's kind of, you know, doesn't matter all that much. Like I was totally confused uh, years ago when the uh, NCAA allowed offensive and defensive players to share numbers. That threw me. Like, you know, I look up and there was a defensive player at Oregon wearing number eight. And I'm being like, why is Marcus Mariota playing safety right now? Like, no. It, so it was that threw me because I had to check the roster card. And I'm sure there were fans. And I'm positive there were broadcasters, visiting broadcasters in particular, that struggled when you have those dual jerseys. But it's a simple numbers thing on a college roster where you just don't have enough available numbers for that position group. And so they keep expanding and going, okay, we can have, uh, you know, we can't have two number fours on the field at the same time. But you can have one on offense and one on defense, and that works, and everybody kind of understands that that's okay. But I, I didn't know that NFL players have not been allowed to wear the number zero or double zero in the first season. So only in the regular season since 1973. And that's the year that the league altered the numbering system that it initially implemented back in 1952. So number zero did appear on rosters with relative frequency according to sports illustrated before then dating back to uh phil white with the kansas city cowboys who wore number zero back in 1925 and like my bigger question is why now why the eagles like is there somebody that's currently on the roster for the eagles that is just chomping at the bit to wear number zero or double zero. Uh, it, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's you know, there's maybe that's just one of these things that the, the Eagles. Everybody has the idea, but somebody, some NFL team needs to propose it. I mean, that's a question for the NFL. But here's another one in basketball. Like in the NCAA, you know, officials will signal fouls in a basketball game using their hands. Like one in five is fifteen. And so you don't see the jersey number 19, 18, 17, 16, like in an NCAA game. But in the NBA, they allow they allow it in part because I think so many jerseys get retired. And so, you know, you see um, Damian Lillard wearing zero for the Blazers, but you do zero on the college uh, level, uh, you know. And, 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 I, and that was something that, like, some people will go, well, how come there's no, you know, number 19 or number 20? But... Uh, NBA rules, by the way, state that you can wear one or two digits on your jersey. You cannot wear a number higher than 99. Um, NBA has attempted to make some changes in the past. It's been always been met with uh, some pushback. But um, the referees in college, in order to make it easier for them, uh, they, uh, you know, little little known statute, 
prohibits college basketball players from wearing numbers six, seven, eight, or nine. Um, and you don't see a lot of players using jersey numbers that are higher than five. Now, you know, you've got some NBA players who do it, so don't at me. Like, you know, once you're retiring Larry Bird's number and uh, others. By the way, the NBA does not allow the number 69 to be worn. You know, you can thank uh, Hall of Famer Dennis Rodman for that little wrinkle. Rodman tried to get it. League stopped him. Coming up, the five at five. Five biggest stories in sports as we see it. Plus, John Wilner will be joining us to talk about the Pac-12 and more. Time to buckle up. The happy hour is coming up next. And I appreciate everybody who makes this radio show part of their day. Leave it right here. Five o'clock hour and the five at five are next. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Coming up a little bit, we'll talk with John Wilner of the San Jose Mercury News, who has some bold predictions when it comes to the Pac-12 conference. Plus, uh, earlier this week, I wrote at johnconzano.com about the quarterbacks in the Pac-12 conference. Seemingly, no one was happy. You know, I ranked the quarterbacks who I think are who are the best QBs, one to six. I uh, pointed out that uh, you know it's going to be the best year ever, and I, I'm really trying to figure out. Why it is that this uh, this crop of quarterbacks is so rich and so deep, from Caleb Williams to Bo Nix to Michael Penix Jr. to DJ Uyunglele. Uh I'll explain what I'm talking about coming up in a little bit. But first, every day in the 5 o'clock hour, we give you the 5 at 5. The 5 at 5. Well, we got to start with Kevin Durant, who scored 23 points in his debut for the Phoenix Suns. He wasn't the star of the game, but all the attention was on KD. Devin Booker, uh, his uh, new sidekick, ended up uh, uh, stealing sort of the, some of the limelight. But uh, Booker was terrific, 37 points, 6 rebounds, 7 assists. Gave you an idea of how one star player can make another star player better. Look, um, Kevin Durant has solidified himself as a generational star in the league, but playing for the first time as a member of the Phoenix Suns last night uh, looked like a potentially devastating one-two punch. Brian Windhorst of ESPN uh, calling it potentially devastating. Durant, after the game, said he feels like he fits in pretty well. He felt comfortable. He also said, quote, I just got to keep grinding, man. And this jersey will look normal as games go on, end quote. He's right. The jersey didn't quite look right, but Kevin Durant looked uh, every bit in form. Number two in our 5 at 5, let's talk about Joe Montana. You might think Tom Brady's the GOAT, greatest of all time, but a jersey worn by the Hall of Fame quarterback Joe Montana in not one but two Super Bowl victories sold for $1.2 million dollars. It obliterated the record paid for a football jersey at an auction. Uh, golden auctions, 
uh, auction this thing off. The previous record, by the way, was $480,000 paid for a 2021 Tampa Bay Buccaneers Tom Brady jersey. Montana first wore the now record-breaking jersey in Super Bowl 19, where the Niners beat the Dolphins 38-16. Then he wore it again four years later in Super Bowl 23, where he engineered a game-winning 92-yard drive, famously known as The Drive, to lead the Niners past the Bengals. If you didn't know that, Montana's jersey, worn in two Super Bowls, gets auctioned off. Number three in our five at five. How can I lose count of that? Number three in the five and five. Let's talk about Jalen Carter. Jalen Carter has returned to the NFL Combine after being arrested. He has returned there uh, after charges of reckless driving and racing were uh, levied against him in connection with a crash that killed a Georgia teammate and a recruiting staff member. Carter's one of the top prospects in the draft. It's going to be really interesting to see how NFL teams treat this. Is he just a sensational athlete, as they they said in Jerry Maguire and... Uh, the truth will come to light. Well, he was booked on a pair of misdemeanors on Wednesday. He was released late Wednesday night. He posted $4,000 in bail and then hustled over to the Combine. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who deserves some here, reported on Wednesday that Carter was present at the scene of the crash and later provided police shifting accounts of the incident. He released a statement on social media saying that he expects to be, quote, fully exonerated of any criminal wrongdoing, end quote. Number four in our five at five. Let's stay in the NFL where the Indianapolis Colts are doing little to deny some speculation that they're considering trading up in the NFL draft. They were asked at the scouting combine yesterday about the idea of trading up from the number four overall pick. And Colts general manager Chris Ballard didn't exactly predict the move, but he certainly left the door open. He said uh, that, uh, you know, he looked at Alabama's Bryce Young. And he said that, quote, we were just convinced that this is the no freaking doubt the guy, end quote. Look, there's a lot of speculation out there, but uh, Ballard and the Colts appear to be posturing for a possible move. Keep an eye on that. Finally, uh, number five in our five at five, let's turn our attention to the men's Pac-12 tournament race. Big race going on. Men's Pac-12 basketball race, I should just say. Big race going on there. Not for the one spot, but at two and three, Arizona and USC are locked up with both identical 13 and five records. You've got those two teams playing tonight on ESPN to determine uh, who will be the two seed in the Pac-12 men's tournament next week. Also, though, there's a race for the four seed. Arizona State currently sitting in the number four spot at 11 and seven. Just one game back, Oregon at 10 and eight. Game and a half back, Utah and Washington State. Keep an eye on the race for four, though. The top four teams in the men's Pac-12 tournament will receive buys next week in the first round in Vegas. Uh, The difference between four, five, six, and seven, really Oregon, Arizona State, Utah, and Washington State, uh, virtually uh, virtually unmeasurable. Those teams have just been all sort of uh, moving along in a herd this season. But but Arizona State, even though they have a one-game lead over Oregon, They play at UCLA tonight on ESPN. The Ducks have a home game against Lowly Cal, 3-26 this season. What in the heck has happened to Cal basketball? Um, Well, I can tell you, they're not investing in basketball. Mark Fox, he he may or may not be a good coach, but how do you win at Cal if you don't have resources? That's our 5 at 5, five biggest things going on in sports. I started with Durant, even though 
I made him the big splash earlier in the show because I just think it's it was so stark to me to see. First of all, it was alarming to see him in a different uniform. I, I When players are traded, I don't care if it's in baseball or football, even Christian McCaffrey going from the Panthers to the Niners, it was just so weird to see him again in a, uh, a different uniform. But uh, I think it was weird last night to see C.J. McCollum uh, in a uh, in a uniform uh, other than the Blazers, even though he's been playing with the Pelicans for a year. It's still strange to see him, uh, you know, playing against the Blazers in that role. I don't think I'll ever get used to that. I also think, uh, you know, Russell Wilson, we talked about him earlier in the show, when he flipped from Seattle to Denver. I mean, he's just changing a uniform, but there's just something weird about seeing a player that you've seen for so long in one uniform in another one. Even right now, when I picture Russell Wilson in my mind, right, picture him in your mind, do you see him in a Seahawks uniform? Or do you see him in a Broncos uniform? I see him in a Seahawks uniform. Same with Clyde Drexler. Clyde Drexler, in your mind. Is he in a Rockets uniform? No. He's in a Blazers uniform. That's how it goes. All right, coming up, John Wilner, San Jose Mercury News. He and I host a podcast, but we're going to kick this around right now. He's got some bold predictions on the Pac-12 next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. John Wilner and I host a podcast. It's called Kanzano and Wilner, the podcast. Very creative name. Uh, you can find that on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get a podcast. Look for Kanzano and Wilner. We focus a lot on the Pac-12. We've had some big guests, ranging from Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, to George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, to Brett Yormark, uh, the Big 12 commissioner. And this week, we had Bob Thompson on, the former Fox Sports Network's uh, uh, president. Uh, Wilner is joining me now on this program to talk a little bit about the Pac-12 men's basketball tournament coming up next week and a, and a little bit about a column he wrote this week with some predictions for the Pac-12's predicament, the media rights predicament. Wilner, how you doing, man? I'm doing okay, thanks. How about yourself? Uh, you know, I gotta thank you because in a sea of misinformation and hysteria and the imminent demise and the crumbling of the Pac-12 conference, you are an oasis in that ocean. <laughs> I appreciate it. I mean, it's hard to avoid the ocean uh, because, and part of that's because the Pac-12 has kept such a tight lid on the actual developments, and yet this thing has gone on for now eight months. So in that void of real news, there is rumor, speculation, conjecture, and I know some of that rumor, speculation, and conjecture could end up being right, but we don't know. And uh, it's hard to kind of know what to believe right now. All right, so let me throw this at you because, you know, from a strategy standpoint, I don't like the silence because I think they have lost the brand and the PR war out there if there's a, there's a battle going on. that they're, Like casual fans, like, you know, my brother living in California and my friends that I grew up with are texting me going, is the Pac-12 going to blow up? Uh, you know, I'm hearing all these horrible things. So that brand is out there. But is there an advantage to them being quiet amid a negotiation? Well, I mean, I'm sure that, that that's what their partners want. I mean, the, the folks that are negotiating on the other side of the table from 
ESPN, Amazon, Apple, whatever, you know, I don't think they want the Pac-12 to turn around and, and leak information. And my guess is the university presidents, who are ultimately going to make the decision, they don't want stuff leaked out either. So it serves the conference executives who are involved in the in the day-to-day negotiation. It serves both their key constituents uh, to just keep quiet on this. We are now approaching, uh, I think today is day 246 since UCLA and USC announced that they were going to leave for the Big Ten. You did some predictions uh, and some survival odds. Help explain your survival odds because you're saying the Pac-12 is a five-and-a-half-point favorite. Like Pac-12 survival is a favorite over Pac-12 extinction by five-and-a-half points. Uh, How do you arrive at that position? Yeah, so, you know, many months ago, uh, I figured I was trying to figure out a way that would kind of illustrate the situation and I figured a point spread is something that a lot of fans can relate to even if you don't know the details of sports betting you know the basics of a point spread so I framed it in those terms and and survival has been a five and a half point favorite over an extinction now if you see one team is a five and a half point favorite over another you think okay you know they're a better team they should win but you never know and that's kind of how I viewed this whole Pac-12 thing It should stay intact and move forward with the 10 schools together, but you never know. It's not a lock. It's not like a two-touchdown favorite. So I put it at about five and a half points a few months ago. It stayed there, but, you know, today I kind of ticked it down to five because I think now that we're into March, they got to get this thing done in the next few weeks or else I think there's going to be some panic, uh, maybe some questioning of the leadership. So it's down to five, which isn't a big drop, but I'm going to treat, keep dropping that thing every week until they get a deal done. You had Washington State President Kirk Schultz on a, and talked with him and wrote about him for uh, your readers who read you at uh, Pac12Hotline.com and, and in the San Jose Mercury News. Um, I want you to unpack that a little bit because we read Schultz's quotes, but you had a much deeper conversation with him. What was the feeling in general that you walked away with after talking with him? You know, he was optimistic, and his view, you know, he's got a great perspective, right, because he's the Pac-12 representative on the college football playoff uh, board of managers. So he was one of the people closely involved in playoff expansion. Uh, He's also been a president of Kansas State, so he was in the Big 12 when it lost, you know, Colorado, Nebraska, uh, Texas A&M. So he's got a really good feel for the whole landscape of college sports and college football. You know, he sounds like the conversations that are going on behind the scenes are a lot different than the conversations that are being had on social media, which is to be expected. The presidents look at things a little bit differently, right? They do care about money. They do care about winning, but they take a broader view. And so he he kind of gave me the impression that he he thinks that they're going to get this thing done and that everybody is on board. Now, you never know, right? Until they sign on the bottom line, you don't know which schools are in, which schools are out, and that's that's a key point. But certainly the feeling from him about the discussions that are going on in the Pac-12 Board of Directors are, are much calmer and steadier than what's being had out on Twitter. Yeah, and that lines up with uh, our listeners here who heard Oregon State's president earlier this week, you know, talk yeah. about the values and how, what they find in common. And, you know, I know you listened to that when, when you heard, um, Jayathi Morthy talking about, you know, the landscape. Now her background's not rich with sports. She's an engineer, 
right? Nickel engineer who grew up in India. She knows cricket. But I thought she she kind of mirrored what Schultz is saying. And I and as a new president, I I tend to think that she's probably in the room doing more listening than talking. But yeah. you heard her. Did it line up with what Schultz has said, or what jumped out at you? Yeah, no, it did line up, and it's a reason to know that the Pac-12 Board of Directors, which is the university presidents, are listeners to know, I should say. The, the board has got a three-person executive committee, which is um, basically sets the agenda, drives the discussion for the broader group of presidents. Schultz is on that board. Stanford President Mark Tessier-Levine is on that board. Washington President Anna Marie Kause is on that board. She is the chair, and the board rotates every two years based on seniority. It's just a coincidence that all the three members are all from, you know, the old North Division schools. Uh, so, you know, what, what Schultz is saying reflects, I think, what everybody was saying. Uh, one thing that, that was noticeable is, is she mentioned to you that they've discussed unequal revenue sharing, which I thought was an interesting little tidbit to take public. It makes sense to me that they would discuss unequal revenue sharing of postseason money, college football playoff or NCAA tournament. But for them to go down the path of unequal share from the main media deal would be a uh, very interesting move. Do you expect that to happen, or do you think that's something that was brought up? Because the way she brought it up made me sound like, hey, we're talking about lots of different things. Here are some of them. And and she she added in that point, uh, she said, you know, and I understand why that would be important to some people. Yeah, no, I got the sense that it was more, we're talking about a bunch of things and this is one of them, rather than we're, we're going down this road. I think that is yet to be determined exactly how they do it. To me, that is a fraught path, an unequal share of the main media deal, because I think it leads to a lot of internal turmoil. To me, you know, given how much money is going to be involved in the the new playoff, the expanded playoff, some kind of unequal share of that. You know, if Oregon or Washington make it, they should, you know, take a a, a bigger amount, right? Yeah. Going down the, the path that, that where they're splitting up the main media deal, I think will lead to problems. John Wilner with us, uh, Bay Area News Group, San Jose Mercury News, also my co-host on the Kanzano and Wilner podcast. You projected in your column this week um, some Pac-12... Uh, media numbers. Uh, the Big 12 Conference, uh, with their agreement with ESPN and Fox, got a deal that will pay each school an average of 31.6 or 31.7 million, right in that neighborhood, starting in 2024, 2025. Uh, where do you put the range for the Pac-12? Right, right, very close to the Big 12. I thought all along that the two conferences were pretty similar. Right, I mean, their current media deals are almost identical. Um, the Big 12 is getting like $1 million more per school per year, right? So the current deals are similar. And then the Big 12 loses Texas and Oklahoma. The Pac-12 loses USC and UCLA. The Big 12 has replaced those two schools, and they did a good job with Cincinnati, UCF, uh, Houston, and BYU. The Pac-12 hasn't replaced anybody. But I also feel like Oklahoma and Texas meant a lot more to the Big 12 than USC and UCLA did to the Pac-12. So I think they're still kind of equal. And my view is the Pac-12 is going to land somewhere in about 10% plus or minus of the Big 12's number, which is so basically $28 million per school at the low end, and the top end would be about $34 million per school. 
And either way, it's not enough. It's not a transformative difference, right? It's not like going to the Big Ten and getting $65 million a year. So I just think, you know, you, you sign the deal and you, you plow forward. ESPN, Apple, Amazon, they've all come up. And I, I want to throw something wild at you. Like, is it possible the conference goes with ESPN as their linear provider and then cuts a deal with maybe Amazon to do a Friday night game and Apple to get all the rest of the Pac-12 networks? Is, is it possible that they can end up on all three partners? And you mentioned another, a fourth entity. You called it an X factor. How does that fit in, in, in this equation? I just feel like there could be something out there that nobody has reported that they've got kind of got up their sleeve. I don't, I don't really know what it could be, but I feel like you got to account for the unknown, right? So that's kind of why I added the X factor. But I, I think it's, it is almost assured to me that there will be Pac-12 football and basketball on ESPN and on either Apple or Amazon, and it's possible could be on all three. Uh, I don't know how Apple and Amazon would feel about sharing. Maybe they'd do it. We don't know. That's kind of uncharted territory because they don't have very many sports properties right now, and they certainly aren't sharing any. But you can't rule it out. And you're right, Amazon, a Pac-12 game on Friday night works perfect coming out of Thursday night football. They can promote it. ESPN, we know that they want the Saturday night 7.30 Pacific kickoff. They probably want some other games, right? If Oregon and Washington are playing, they're both top ten. ESPN's going to want that game. So it could be any combination, I think, of those three. But I would be very surprised if there's no Pac-12 football on ESPN. The the geography here is interesting. And I have felt for a while that, uh, you know, Big 12 fans and fans in other part of the country don't quite understand two things. One, the ongoing distribution issues with the Pac-12 network, I think, have changed mindsets here in the Pacific time zone. Like, I think if if the content's on Apple or Amazon where we can all find it, it'll be hallelujah, let's get it, and, you know, let's move forward. At least we can see the damn games. And the second thing is just the G of Apple and Amazon. You pointed it out in your column that Washington's president, uh, Anna Marie Cosse, her office is three and a half miles from Amazon's headquarters. Like, how does that factor in your mind? I just think that there is a... You know, Amazon and Apple are a deep part of the culture out here, right? And Washington and Amazon are working together on a science uh, center on the on the UW campus that they announced a year ago, right? That they're that Amazon is just so ingrained with Washington. There's such a close relationship, and Kelsey is chair of the board. Apple is so ingrained in the Bay Area. It's hard for yeah, it's hard for other fans who live elsewhere to kind of recognize how deeply rooted those two companies are in everything that goes on on the West Coast and the Pac-12 footprint. And that makes, to me, Pac-12 presidents don't look at them as, you know, uh, don't look at streaming through those two companies as a scary proposition. They look at it as, you know, kind of tightening the relationship that already exists with those two companies. You know, I'm looking at expansion, and I know a lot of SMU and San Diego State fans are very impatient um, you have placed odds, 50% odds that the Pac-12 adds two teams, 45% odds they add no teams, only 5% that they add four teams. How did you arrive there? I just kind of threw a dart at the wall. <laughs> no, I just I don't know for, that it, for sure they're going to expand because it will depend somewhat on how much money there is. If they get a, a really low offer, lower than they want, lower than they expect, 
uh, and the networks say, you know what, we're not going to pay you very much for those extra games, they may not expand. Uh, but, but the piece, the key piece is the inventory, right? If, if you have a 12-team conference, you can play 13 or 15 more home games a year. And 13 or 15 more games a year, that is a lot of value to, to networks. So that's kind of why I think they're going to end up doing it. If, they, if Amazon wants a Friday night game and you've only got a 10-team league, you gotta, those teams are going to be playing a lot of Friday nights. Whereas if you have a 12-team league, you know, everybody plays twice or so on Friday night. And I think that that's going to be a key piece of their decision. John Wilner, you can read him, Pac12Hotline.com. San Jose Mercury News. Also, catch him on Conzano and Wilner, the podcast. Again, I'm going to say this, man. Uh, you know, there's a lot of nonsense out there. And uh, there have been a few times I wanted to quit Twitter because of the nitwits in the uh, Big 12 footprint coming after me. But uh, you are a, a rare piece of sanity in that, in that ocean. I appreciate that very much, my friend. Thank you. All right. Thank you, John Wilner. Really interesting stuff there from John Wilner, uh, the guru, the Bay Area News Group superstar. Um, you know, unpack this a little bit. You know, for those of you out there who believe the conference is uh, imminently in trouble or shaking or crumbling, uh, you know, I would encourage you to step back and ask yourself, if, put yourself in, first of all, the position of the Big Ten Conference. Kevin Warren added UCLA and USC. He may have had an appetite for more schools. He certainly talked about expanding further but he was subsequently not renewed by his presidents. There seemed to be some displeasure with that sentiment. And I, and I suspect it was coming from Michigan State, Purdue, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, uh, Rutgers in Maryland, and, you know, Northwestern. There's just a whole bunch of parties there that I do not think would want Washington and Oregon in the conference for a variety of reasons. First of all, you're subsidizing those universities. They're not worth 70 plus million dollars in media rights revenue. They're not in L.A. like the UCLA and USC are. Um, and so it just doesn't make any sense. Secondarily, why would you want to compete against those schools while you're subsidizing them? It just makes no sense to me if you are those schools that I mentioned, among others. Um, secondarily, if you're at the four corner schools, Utah, Arizona, Arizona State, and Colorado, you're watching Oregon and Washington. As long as they stay in the conference, you're staying too. It's where you want to be. Rick George, the Colorado AD, told me that you know, he said, why would you leave a conference with 10 or 12 members to go into another conference with 14 or 16 or 18 members when the goal is trying to get to the playoff? And it's a great point. You're not going to make a lateral move, and it is a lateral financial move at best to go into the Big 12 conference because you're adding on travel. You're talking about having to play you know, Houston and Louisville and play games in Florida, and it doesn't make any sense to me for those schools to even be thinking about it. Yes, you want to do your diligence. Yes, of course, you know, if I were the athletic director, the president of one of those schools, I would hire a consultant and say, hey, uh, you know, pencil this out for me. But it, it has never made sense to me. And in five and six months of talking about this, I have stayed consistent with the message. Uh, I have talked to university presidents, multiple. I've talked to eight or nine of the athletic directors that are among the remaining 10 schools. And I've told you over and over, the message I'm getting internally from the Pac-12 over and over and over again is we are galvanized, we are committed, we are together, there's nowhere to go. Uh, I had one AD tell me, as long as Oregon and Washington stay, uh, you know, nothing's happening. Like, But if they do go, maybe it would be run for the hills. That was very early on. Um, look, I just think everybody is committed in, in this. And I think they'll get a deal. 
I don't like the noise. I don't like the misinformation. I don't like that some media members nationally, I think, are taking advantage of fear and anxiety. There's a lot of fear-mongering going on. feels a little bit too close to the ugliness of politics that we saw in the last decade or so. It just it hasn't been very civil. Uh, that's the best I can put it. But I'm here to tell you, like, this conference is staying together. And anybody, I keep hearing from people, go, oh, are they breaking up? Or, I'm like, where are they going? doesn't make any sense. Step back and think about it. I don't think the presidents, and again, we've heard on the record publicly from two of them now in the last two weeks, who have said, hey, calm down. And then the other eight also signed that statement saying, hey, we're committed. There's nothing to see here. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm with Wilner. I think the conference needs to get something done and pronto. But... I also am um, among the mindset that it's been really disappointing to watch some of the media members uh, navigate this process because I, I think you're being taken advantage of, and I frankly think that they're after your clicks, and and uh, to me it doesn't feel right. Coming up, I'm going to talk about Bo Nix, DJ Uyunglele, and the Pac-12 quarterbacks. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Earlier in the week, we had Jonathan Smith, the Oregon State football coach, on the show. I asked him about DJ Uyunglele, the quarterback at Oregon State, the transfer quarterback, um, and I wrote a column about it yesterday. Yeah, If you want to read that, you can go to johnconzano.com. That's where you read me exclusively now. Uh, you get a free subscription, get a paid subscription. I always say what works for you works for me, but the bigger thing was uh, I finally got a chance to talk some football yesterday because we have spring ball coming with Oregon State starting their practices next week and Oregon and everybody else in this conference getting ready to go play spring football, which uh, frankly gets my juices going. Um, but I started looking at DJ's impact at Oregon State, and I even ranked the 12 quarterbacks in the conference and picked my top six. And when you look at the quarterbacks who will be playing in this conference next season, I mean, it's an interesting study. And I've asked several Pac-12 coaches. I reached out to several coaches and said, hey, well, how do you explain – the fact that the Pac-12 suddenly has all these great players. And I had one coach who told me it's because the athletic directors in the conference have begun to hire offensive-minded coaches like Chip Kelly. He went to UCLA, and Kenny Dillingham goes to Arizona State, and Jonathan Smith went to Oregon State. And you had this line of offensive-minded coaches, Jed Fish at Arizona, that suddenly there was this priority on offense. But I don't think that's totally it. Like Even, even Dan Lanning, I asked him yesterday, I said, give me your theory on why the conference is attracting quality quarterbacks. And he told me that he thinks the transfer portal has made it more likely, uh, first of all, for teams to have proven quarterbacks. So this might not just be a Pac-12 thing. And by, and also, you've got some small school quarterbacks who are successful who see the Pac-12 conference as a stepping stone. Cam Ward comes to mind uh, as an example of that. And uh, you also see, like, Deion Sanders bringing his kid to Colorado to play quarterback. There's a case like that. But Bo Nix, let's talk about NIL. Bo Nix returns to Oregon. Without name, image, likeness, Bo Nix is gone. He's, he's gone trying to make an NFL roster. Michael Penix Jr. returns to Washington, right? With not, without name, image, likeness, he's gone. Caleb Williams is too young. Cam Rising, NIL money, decides that he's going to come back. So you have these guys that are like likely to get into an NFL camp. You know, Some of them would stick on a roster, I certainly think Penix Jr. is 
you know, a guy that I think can play at the next level for a while. But I, I look at sort of the quarterbacks in this conference, and I think not only are they uh, hiring offensive-minded coaches in the Pac-12, not only do you have the transfer portal making it easier for teams to right away get a get a quarterback and reload, but you also have um, NIL, like the name image likeness money, available to kind of retain your best quarterbacks. And I started looking at this. Cam Rising's 23 years old. He'll be the oldest quarterback by a matter of days in the conference. Second oldest is Bo Nix, also 23, but a couple of months younger than Cam Rising. After that, you got some 22-year-olds, some 21-year-olds, some 20-year-olds, all the way down to UCLA who could start Dante Moore as a true freshman next year. But I think it's interesting that you're seeing some older quarterbacks play in this conference. And I don't think the Pac-12 has ever had two quarterbacks, two starting quarterbacks, 23 years old before. Like, that's just, that's new to college football. So I think part of it is that as well. But uh, here's what Jonathan Smith said about DJ Uyunglele when he joined this program earlier this week. I want you to listen to this because I found some stuff out after we interviewed Jonathan Smith on this show. Well, he's been great. Been here uh, almost two months. Um, I think he's went to work and fit in well. Uh, the guy's, it uh, seems like, he really enjoyed himself. Um, I appreciate it. He's tried to be, you know, out of the limelight, you know, just going to work and, and understanding that he's got work to do. So I'm, I'm definitely anxious to get him out spring practice and, and work with our guys. And I do think we upgraded the, the talent slash the competition in the QB room, not just with DJ, but Aiden Childs arriving here as well freshman that we think has got a huge upside and been returning so we got three guys there that we're we're anxious and excited about all right so he hits on something in that talk and i several times he's talked about you know uh dj coming to campus being there two months kind of keeping his head down keeping a low profile he's got work to do get to know his teammates like it struck me as i was interviewing jonathan smith on tuesday's show that that there was some messaging in there that was out of the normal. And I later found out that, it, you know, there is a real emphasis, and this makes sense to me at Oregon State, to not make spring football about DJ Palooza. You know, because the national media is going to love this. The Clemson quarterback, the guy that was the five-star recruit, he transferred out of Dabo Sweeney's program to go to Oregon State. He's the missing piece there. Uh, let's go write about, you know, how he's resurrected his the trajectory of his college career and he's become the guy at Oregon State and you know is could he challenge Penix Jr. and Bo Nix and and uh and Cam Rising and Caleb Williams to you know for for being one of the top one or two or three quarterbacks in the conference and there's a bunch of storylines there and ESPN's coming out to Corvallis they've already asked Oregon State for a one-on-one interview I've asked Oregon State for a one-on-one interview I'm told we'll get DJ on the show here in in the next two weeks but there's a real emphasis and a real push at Oregon State to maintain and preserve the culture that the program has built. And I think Jonathan Smith is being smart here. I don't think this is bad. But, you know, as I was trying to ask questions about about uh, DJ with Oregon State, what I really found out was that Oregon State doesn't want to make him the face of the program right now. They wanted to give him a chance to get to Corvallis, move into his apartment. You got an apartment that's like five minutes from campus. Um, he has, uh, you know, been at the football facility. People that I'm talking with say that he's just know his teammates. He's hanging around with his teammates. Next week they'll start spring practice. He'll start to do some interviews and stuff. And you're going to see a lot of DJ, DJ, DJ talk 
But it's true. Jonathan Smith's got to do a couple things here. He's got Aiden Childs, who is a gifted freshman who is in camp, who's probably the future at that position. And I think he needs to make Childs feel like, hey, he's important too. And then he's got Ben Gulbrinson, who engineer helped engineer the 10-win season last year. Like, we can talk about the run game and the defense. Gulbrinson made some plays. And it made enough plays for Oregon State to get W's. Uh, and, and he was the guy. He's the quarterback of record when they won 10 games. So give him some credit there, too. And if you're Oregon State, you don't want to lose Goldbrinson. You want to keep him engaged, and you want to use spring football to do that. So I think what you're going to see in week one of spring football from Oregon State, mark my words, next week, I think you're going to see a lot of Goldbrinson. You're going to see him quoted. You're going to see him pushed forward. You're going to see him doing interviews. I think Oregon State, if I ask for Goldbrinson, be happy to have him on the show next week. If I ask for DJ, which I did, they're talking to me about, hey, can we get him on like that second or third week of March later in spring ball? And I think there's a concerted effort there by Jonathan Smith and his staff that is really smart to try this season not just about DJ Uyunglele and, and him being coming into the program. They are very focused at Oregon State on the culture of the program. Jonathan Smith talked about that. You always hear about it. They've done a nice job with it. So keep an eye on that as they move forward. Up next, I'm going to talk about my rankings for the Pac-12 season. I ranked the QBs, and I got some blowback from Oregon fans, and I got some blowback from Washington fans, believe it or not. But I ranked my six quarterbacks in the Pac-12. I'll talk about them next, one to six, and why I rank them that way for now, and who among numbers six through 12 could be a surprise next season. Never too early to talk college football. Leave it right here. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750, the game. Well, first off, I'm just really excited to be back. Uh, I'm really excited to play with, with this team one more year and with these coaches. I'm excited um, for Coach Lanning going into his second season uh, with one under his belt so far. And um, just the success we had last year winning 10 games, um, especially with a bowl, coming off of a, a bowl win, um, it's really important for our team. And um, we're just excited. Um, we're excited to go into this offseason um, and get prepared and get ready to go for the season. That's University of Oregon quarterback Bo Nix after uh, he announced that he was coming back for another year at Oregon and one of the best quarterbacks in the Pac-12. I, I, I kind of ranked them yesterday, ranked my top six quarterbacks, and you can read that at johnconzano.com if you want to read about it. I wrote about Oregon State quarterback DJ Uyunglele, who I just talked about in the last segment. But if you look at the quarterbacks in the Pac-12 conference, you're talking about Jaden Delora at Arizona, Drew Pine at Arizona State. Um, uh uh, you know, Bo Nix at Oregon, DJ at Oregon State, Dante Moore, five-star recruit to UCLA, Caleb Williams, Heisman Trophy winner, USC, Cam Rising, great leader, guy with the X Factor, George Plimpton at Utah, Michael Penix Jr. at Washington, Cam Ward at Washington State. That stable of quarterbacks is as good as you have seen, as we have seen in the Pac-12 conference. Now, how do you rank them? Um, I think there's two separate groups here. There is a group of players like... Uh, Deion Sanders' kid, uh, Shador Sanders at Colorado, and Dante Moore at UCLA, um, and Pine at Arizona State, and maybe even Sam Jackson at Cal, who are speculative plays, meaning 
These are all players who could be incredibly disruptive if they start, if they get put into a good position, if they have talent around them. I wouldn't be surprised to see Dante Moore at UCLA look really good but uh, and potentially disruptive, or Sanders at Colorado be put in a position to succeed, or uh, even Jackson at Cal, um, former uh, TCU quarterback, or Pine, who's transferred to Arizona State. All these guys uh, could be disruptive. But they are, I have to I have to rank the Colorado, UCLA, Arizona State, Cal, even Cam Ward at Washington State. They were my bottom six, okay? My bottom five, my bottom six. Even Ari Patu at Stanford. I put him in the bottom six as well. So my my top half of the conference quarterbacks are, and, and I'm not going to rank them in order here. I'm just going to say, here's the top half. Then I'll rank them. Um, Arizona's Jaden Delora has to be uh, a top half of the conference quarterback. Bo Nix at Oregon, obviously. DJ Uyunglele at Oregon State, top half. Caleb Williams, USC, top half. Cam Rising, Utah, top half. Michael Penix Jr. at Washington, top half. Those, those are your six top quarterbacks in the Pac-12. Now, here's how I ranked them. And I got blowback from Washington fans and Oregon fans and even some Utah fans after writing this. And just check the comment section at johnconzano.com. But Caleb Williams at USC has to be number one on the board. He is the reigning Heisman Trophy winner. He's returning at USC. He's still in Lincoln Riley's offense. They will reload around him, and I think USC will be a little bit better all around on offense. That said, we've seen the Heisman hangover, and I felt like down the stretch last season, there were just a couple of moments where it became evident that like USC was really leaning on Caleb Williams, especially in the Pac-12 title game. Once he got hurt, Utah just put their ears back and came after him and sacked him and sacked him and sacked him and made him look a little erratic. But, you know, he still won the Heisman Trophy. He's still got to be number one on your list right now for now. But Washington fans didn't like that. Washington fans love Michael Penix Jr., and I do too. Full disclosure, I've got a Heisman vote. I had both Caleb Williams and Michael Penix Jr. on my Heisman ballot. And, hell, I might have gone all Pac-12 and put Bo Nix on there had he stayed healthy. But I had Penix Jr. third on my ballot. I had Caleb Williams first on my ballot. Yes, I had some problems with what he wrote on his fingernails, but in the end, I felt like he was the best player in the Pac-12. I thought he was the most valuable player to any team in the country, and I think Caleb Williams is going to be a great pro someday. Michael Penix Jr., I feel largely the same way about him at Washington. He's in a great system with Kalen DeBoer. He was fantastic at different points last season. I just felt like, you know, if you're going to put him 1-2, it's got to be Caleb Williams 1, Michael Penix Jr. 2. So Washington fans, don't get mad. You know, you're right behind the, Heisman, the reigning Heisman Trophy winner with Penix Jr. And Penix Jr. could have a better year than Caleb Williams this year. It's set up that way at Washington. So look out. I think there's going to be a hell of a race between those two. I also think Bo Nix is in that conversation. About mid-season of last year, I started thinking about Bo Nix being a potential Heisman Trophy winner. Now, this season, uh, I think the month of October is going to be huge for Bo Nix and Oregon. They play at Washington in October. That is a huge opportunity for Bo Nix to get national attention and potentially win a game and, hell, get some vengeance against Washington. Also play at home against USC in the same month. So keep an eye on the month of October. If you're looking at Bo Nix as separating himself or trying to be a Heisman Trophy winner, October is when that happens, if it happens, for Bo Nix as he surges in October. If Oregon wins games, if Bo Nix plays well, Look out, he's in that conversation. Because if he had stayed healthy down the stretch and they beat Washington and they make the Pac-12 title game, maybe even they beat USC, I think Bo Nix gets some Heisman votes. But I just think the way that the season kind of unraveled with losing to Oregon State, 
him unable to move around, not very effective using his legs in the last half of the season. Oregon uh, losing to Washington and Oregon State late. That the, Both those losses hurt. Not getting to the conference title game, it ultimately hurt Bo Nix um, in that race. So I have Caleb Williams 1, Michael Penix Jr. 2, Bo Nix 3. Don't get mad at me. Uh, fourth, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a little surprise here at 4. DJ Uyunglele at Oregon State. I'm going to put him fourth on the board because I think what he can do in the Oregon State scheme with a great offensive line coached by Jim Mahalchek and a deep stable of running backs. Uh, I know they lost some wide receivers. Uh, you know, Harrison is gone. Uh, Bradford is gone. So Oregon State's going to have to find guys to catch the ball, but I'm told they've got depth there that we're going to see here in the spring. I have DJ fourth on that list, and I think you could challenge those top three if Oregon State builds around him in a way that lets him throw the football more. And I just think he's going to be a great fit at Oregon State. Uh, fifth on my board, Cam Rising at Utah. George Plimpton wrote a book years ago called The X Factor. Okay, It was about uh, leaders in business, leaders in politics, presidents, Michael Jordan. It's about all these people who had excelled. If you haven't read the book The X Factor by George Plimpton, go to Amazon and get it. Or go to Barnes & Noble, uh, wherever you buy a book, uh, and get it. Uh, but it's a great book, and it kind of talks about the leadership traits of strong leaders. Cam Rising's got that. And as he goes, Utah goes. He is also 23 years old, and he's the oldest quarterback in the conference. So Cam Rising has to be in the top six. He's a great leader. I don't think he has the skills of Caleb Williams or Michael Penix Jr. or Bo Nix or DJ, but he's got to be in the conversation there because the guy just wins, and he's a two-time Pac-12 champion, and he's coming back. Jaden Delora is my number six, the Arizona quarterback, just a phenomenal talent, a lot of raw talent. He makes some mistakes, but he's dynamic. I think if he ever gets more talent around him, and Jed Fish is doing that, using the portal well at Arizona, I think Jaden Delora could take a big step forward. But to me, those are your top six. After that, I look at Dante Moore at UCLA. I look at Sanders at Colorado. I look at Pine at Arizona State. I think he'll pile up numbers. Cameron Ward at Washington State. Thought he kind of went sideways last year was a little disappointing at parts of the season but he he's a guy who could come up and challenge now if all those guys any of those guys start those younger players especially they could be really disruptive i also think there's a few expected starters who might get pressed for playing time because there are a whole bunch of really good quarterbacks who are sitting up in backup positions all right the uh bald face truth is not here for a long time just a good time uh, I appreciate everybody who makes this radio show part of their day. Grab the podcast. If you missed the interview with John Wilner or Amy Perko or uh, me talking about Russell Wilson earlier in the show, you can get a podcast of it wherever you get a podcast. The bald Face Truth, as I said, not here for a long time, just a good time.